Alright, and you're good on... Actually, I'm gonna keep the headphones off. Sure? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I feel weird with them on. Welcome everyone to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I'm Pat Contry, and I have an out-of-towner visiting me from the uh, originally from the east coast from long island i believe yes you're proud of your long island roots his name is colin moriarty formerly of ign and kind of funny now does colin's last stand he does his side quest show he does his retro show called knockback fireside chats sacred symbols playstation podcast colin welcome to this uh, humble game room thank you it's actually quite impressive it's good to meet you in person finally and, you know, we had connected online, you know, about a year and a half ago and we've been talking. My brother's a huge fan of yours. And so it's cool to see it in the flesh and your very impressive game collection. Well, it, it's it's more longevity than, I guess, an accomplishment. When people uh, compliment a game collection, what are you actually what are you actually complimenting? You're complimenting the drive and the sociopathy to go the lengths that I have to acquire thousands of, of pieces of plastic that are dead physical media that no one will care about in 25 years? Is it the amount of money you spend? Is it the hundreds of hours of flea marketing and, and, and eBay searching in order to get these relics? I don't know, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Yeah, I think it's... I just NES is my favorite console of all time, and so it's cool to see a full collection of games and... I think people are going to care a great deal about these things in 25 years and 50 years and 100 years. You think so? You, I think, you, think that, you think the physical media versus just the games? Yeah, well, I think I, so I have this theory. Like, when I worked at IGN, I got pretty much every game for free. And I have boxes and boxes of PS3 games and PS4 games, so many of them unopened. And my theory, you know, my girlfriend asked me, why do you keep these things? It's like, you know, Apache helicopter, like games no one cares about. Sure. And I'm like, my theory is, is that in 100 years or 50 years, anyone will care about any of these things just existing, especially in shrink wrap. You'll see them on Antiques Roadshow and... 2100 with a huge collection of games because it's just old at some point old things are just cool regardless of what they are you know uh they're cool but they're not really valuable to a lot of people that's really the difference my grandfather had a a player piano that's now in some some like saloon sort of mock-up somewhere in the midwest he had hundreds of the player piano rolls he couldn't give them away when he got rid of his piano and those things are from the 20s, 30s, 40s. And it's not exactly easy to come by those. You can't walk into, into your Target and find those. I went to the swap meet, and there was someone who had them. I, at the swap meet, I may have seen them twice in about 10 years, and no one wanted them. They were, they were just relics. Like, who has a player piano? Who needs to have that creepy uh, auto-playing piano in their home? No one really has them. I'm not sure they make player pianos anymore, now that I think about it. I don't know if they make the player piano rolls. So it, I think there's a difference between... Uh, availability versus price versus people actually wanting to have them like the smithsonian might want to have them but mm. anyone else i'm not uh, sure you got to just it's like it's like any capitalist thing you got to just connect with the person who wants them and it'll be worth whatever the person's willing to pay as my dad always used to tell absolutely me. And, and so my theory about these old games is that we're, i'm the last generation i think how are you 34 Thir- i'm 33 i'll be 34 next month all right you're a youngin compared to me congratulations on the birthday I don't know why. Why do, why do we congratulate people on birthdays? I hate my birthday. We can't stop them. Uh, do you not celebrate your birthday usually? I try. Well, on my thirtieth birthday, I intentionally celebrated it because I was like, I never, I never do anything for myself on my birthday. I try to avoid it. But typically, it's like nice if no one says anything to me. Really? Yeah. Is I, it a mortality thing? No, it's like I don't want to be the center of attention. Really, like it, it's like for just something. Capri- it's just totally. It's the day I was born. It's really not a. Colin Moriarty does not want to be the center of attention. Wow, that's ironic, isn't it? I guess it is. As I said it, I was like, there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a contradiction here. You, you being the center of attention is the only reason I found out about you, to be honest. But we'll get to that in a bit. Sure. But what was I saying? Oh, dead physical media. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's like anything else is that the, the people that care about 
uh, collectibles the most, whether it's Elvis collectibles, Dolly Parton stuff, are the people that grew up and were around it. Those, no one after that generation will love it as much as the people that originally owned it. So I think those Sega Master System games are not long for this world in terms of uh, desirability 50 years from now. That's just my opinion. Being around the retro games and seeing the themes, uh, the biggest the biggest example we have in analog, the first g- generation of game collectors were in the 90s with Atari 2600 games because those were guys reaching their late 30s, their 40s, um, even as young as their uh, 20s if it's 77 to, let's say, 94, 17 years. Yeah, they're in their 20s, late 20s, early 30s. And those games shot up in value because everyone was looking for them. Mm. Now, you can't give away those games nowadays. You can't give away an Atari 2600 cart. That, That's what Dagan was telling me. He said there's like a big grab bag, basically, just take whatever you no, want. No, no. It, it's like in television games, uh, Atari 2600 games, they are, they are uh, mostly worthless except for the ones that are like hard to find that collectors want. You get a centipede cartridge or a combat or you know, or a Pac-Man, and they're worthless. And, and I think that's what most of these will be, if not 20 years from now, 50 years from now. The majority, you'll still have people saying, "Oh, I want an original Super Mario Brothers car because that's culturally significant." Right. And Nintendo will still be producing Mario games past when we're dead, uh, unless they can freeze our brains and bring us back in the future. They'll still have Super Mario Brothers games. But I think for like the, ra- uh, the the average game that no one talks about right now, why would someone talk about that game 20 years from now? That's just my opinion. No, you you could be very right. Yeah, I. I for me, as an NES kid and, and is just like a, a lover, like I dream about doing something like this for things that I care about a great deal too, like G.I. Joe and stuff like that from the, 80, the 82 to 94 run. So to see... Real American Hero. Yeah. That was we're, like... We're, we're big G.I. Joe fans, I believe. Yeah. I'm a huge... Yeah. Yeah. That's like one of my favorite things. So um, I just don't have the space right now. Like I, that's... Dagan and I have talked about that, that that's... When I have space, like he has a house that, like you do and... And uh, his own little room that he calls Leonardo. He painted it blue. He calls a room Leonardo? Yeah, yeah he has a room. His studio is called Leonardo. It's painted. One wall's painted like Leonardo blue. Digging, but I got to have a talk with you about that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's healthy. And uh, he has like some... So he's getting his collection going. And I, when I have space, I'd like to get you know some of my collecting going. But I just... I respect the drive. I respect the games. <laughs> and I think it's like seeing, you know, especially like the first run... You know, like the first run of NES games, like I see Kung Fu, one of my favorites. The black box games. Yeah, it's it's just cool. I think it's neat. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it, would, it would not be as impressive if I saw it over and over again. I'm numb to it. So when I have someone like you over, like, wow, I had uh, Andre Meadows. Uh, first time I saw it, Andre Meadows, Black New Comedy. I've been friends with him for years. He comes over. He's like, oh, my God. I'm like, yeah, let's just go get tacos. I don't care yeah. anymore. I, I'm so numb to this because I started collecting in 97, 98. And so back then, no one cared about most of the games. No one really cared until really 2000 and... Uh, Six to ten, the, the the retro gaming sort of uh, scene sort of blew up. I always mark it as when the Wii came out with the virtual console in two thousand six. People are like, oh, these are games that we can play again that were old. That was really the first wide stream mainstream way you could have done it. And then the combination of that and YouTube, people discovering old video games. Those two points, people like James Rolfe, Angry Video Game Nerd, those points really brought retro gaming back or brought brought the old games back. As I play with my uh, retro uh, NES controller, little plushy thing that. Nintendo's now licensed. It goes from Nintendo licensing nothing or caring about nothing, the NES era, for about 20 years until now everything's NES again. I love it. Yeah, I do too. And it's it's funny because I remember being on eBay 97, 98, 99, trading games and buying games and like the things I was buying and selling for so cheap, like for nothing. For like even, you know, like Dragon Warrior 4, which is a very valuable NES game. I remember that going for like a fraction of what it goes for now, I think. And my favorite thing about following you on Twitter is the swap meet. Um, pictures people send you in the uh, the flea market stuff that people send yeah. you and it must I know that those finds must be more and more scarce because people are more aware of what they have but I think that must be so fun 
and so exciting to find something. Yeah, you know? there's a there's a rush to it. it. It's it's definitely like sort of that gambling rush where it's like, oh, I'm going to win something, even though you're really not winning at life. Waking up six a.m. Uh, trudging out to a swap meet half asleep with a backpack and walking around and potentially finding nothing. You're really not winning, which is what I discovered. Well, I had to, I had to give up the flea markets a lot uh, when I was working on uh, my, my NES book because I just had to finish it because I was losing my mind. It was two and a half years. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to not go to the swap meet as often. But it really was that OCD in my head saying, if you don't go, Pat, you're not going to find this great deal. You're not going to find it. It was so hard to get away from it. And I think that's what it is. It, it, there's that feeling that you, it's, it's a, was, it, was it FOMO, fear of missing out? Mm-hmm. That's what the swap me was. Because there was a good two-year period where I would go every Saturday and Sunday here. Because the East Coast was, was always, I think, ahead of the game in terms of the collectability. So when I left the East Coast in 2009, there were resellers and people that would hunt the swap meets to flip the games. Out here, that wasn't really happening yet. So when I first... Came here, I'd be, I'd be finding like uh, Virtual Boy uh, in the rental case. I'd be finding uh, Atari Jaguars complete in box. Wow. You don't just find this stuff. Mm. Sealed uh, Marvel versus Capcom uh, 2 for Xbox was not easy to find. You know, things like that where I was just like, huh, this is going to get bad. So it ended up where I would go and spend maybe $200 every Saturday and Sunday, so almost $400 a week, and come back with just garbage bags of stuff. I'd have to leave stuff at booths and walk around and and almost not remember where I left stuff. There'd be times I'd be like, where, where do I leave that board game? Where do I leave that bag of G.I. Joe toys? Like, that would happen. And do you did, were you doing it to, because you said people flip them, were you trying to flip them as well? Or were no, you just was, filling holes in your collection? It was just, compiling. Yeah. It was compiling things. Maybe not like these these rare demo units, but mm. definitely there's no way. I say ninety percent of my Genesis games on that shelf, and that's only half my Genesis games. That's all from the swap meet. Uh, some Masters games, a lot of the Sega CD games, thirty two X games, PlayStation One long box games. I'm not going to go on eBay and buy that stuff. I didn't grow up with that stuff. I don't know what that stuff is, which is a problem though, because then you shy away as a collector from what is my wheelhouse? NES, uh, TurboGrafx sixteen, Master System. I grew up with that uh, stuff, and PC. I switched from Super Nintendo to PC. Um, as a mainstay. But then as a collector, you go, all right, I have most of the NES games. What's next? Genesis. What's, what's next? N64. What's next? And that's what happened. I think with a lot of collectors, that's why people have, uh, you know, shot away from NES. And then, well, Genesis shot up for a while. And then Super Nintendo shot up and it is a generational thing as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Like collectors have that drive that it's partially nostalgia. It's partially OCD because a lot of people have nostalgia for, the games I grew up with on the on the NES doesn't mean everyone has to has to get eight hundred games. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And you your collection. I was asking Dagan. Your collection is com- is complete, right? Like you have the complete have American NES, North American game. I got Steam events. Yeah, laying I, I, around behind me, and that's like a game that I could get eight thousand dollars for. Yeah, right I know. And I, I, I think like I specifically asked him, like, he got stadium events, and it was, and it was kind of like a thing when you got it, right? When you, when you, w- w- that was like an accomplishment. No. It was very bitter, bittersweet completing the collection because if this had happened like eight, nine years ago, let's put it this way. If I found like the, are you familiar with the Panesian games? You see those three on the second shelf on the left there? Yeah. Peekaboo Poker, Bubble Beth Babes, and Hot Slots, the adult games. If I found those at the swap meet for 20 bucks, I'd be excited. But being that I, I, I paid almost quote unquote retail price for them. It was just sort of, yeah, I completed it. I almost put it off. Those were really the last games I got. I got those, two out of three of those I got after stadium events. And that was really it. And now I have almost all the all the manuals, and uh, most of your audience doesn't care. <laughs> no, I mean, I, honestly, I, Fireside Chats, which is this, well, we're going to mirror this on it's Fireside Chats. It's a crossover. Chats. It's you know, that's an eclectic interview series about all sorts of things. So, sure. they, and they do care. They do okay, care a great deal. Do. I think I got a few when I, when people knew I was coming down here. I got a few tweets and a few messages hoping that we would collaborate, and I actually ignored them because I didn't want to ruin the surprise. 
So wow, yeah. well, I haven't said anything either. Maybe because some of my friends will be mad that I interviewed you, but that's yeah. a whole other conversation. Well, I, I am I am at a slight risk talking to you, and and, and that that's not your fault, absolutely not. Uh, but there are people that obviously have issues with you in one form or another. But, but you know, they have issues with me too. But but you became a lightning rod at some point in time, and that's how I really discovered you. I, I'm, I'm not someone that frequented IGN at all. Right. Uh, in the, in the 2000s, what you had uh, IGN, you had GameSpot. Uh, what what are the big ones that went out of business then that the old uh, IGN swallowed up? Like, one up, we we swallowed one up, one up and um, yeah, there was a, there's I think Games Radar is still out there and a few others, but I don't. I honestly, I'm, I'm not a consumer of the the thing I always say is I'm not a consumer of games media at all. I don't listen to games like I don't watch games YouTube channels or podcasts and like so I I totally understand. Well, I, I was there, but I wasn't like well, consuming any of it. Really quick, because I have a couple of friends in in the uh, in the industry. Yeah. Uh, Destin Ligari. Yeah, he's I, a good buddy of mine. I knew I knew when he was on Screw Attack mm-hmm. way back in the day, and we 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 would make fun of each other at those old Screw Attack gaming conventions in 2010 when I. I had a lot more energy and less droopy eyes. Um, what was it like, just for like 30 seconds, working in 30 seconds, working in the, in the professional gaming journalism industry? What was it like for you? Was it, it was, a dream come true or was it just a job? It, what, it, became, it was a dream come true and then it became a job. And it was, you know, I, I climbed the ladder to a pretty senior position there and it was fun. And, um, but, you know, games media, you have to kind of, you hear about how it's, you know, people are underpaid and that's true. I fought really hard to be paid a good wage. Um, you know, you have to fight for that. It's a lot of work. It's dedication. It's many hours. You know, it's bringing your work home. And it kind of, it it runs the risk. And I think it's pretty common if you stay in the industry for a long time. It runs the risk of kind of ruining games for you in a way. Um, you look at them differently. You look at them always critically. You're always on, as it were. So for me, when I left IGN to go to Kind of Funny, it was kind of a recapturing of the way I wanted to play games, the games I wanted to cover, ignoring everything else, you know, and as opposed to being all-encompassing. And that's the way that's the way you should want your hobby to be. So, you know, it, it's it's a blessing and a curse, but it's also a dying industry. Not IGN's doing fine, but most of these sites like people always ask me, like, how do I get into games media? And I want to be a games journalist. And I'm like, no, you don't, because that's a you'd much rather be a YouTuber or a podcaster. These well, days. I would say, no, you don't want to be a YouTuber either, though. It, it's, it's interesting uh, how the platforms change. So it used to be that, oh, if you made it to IGN or GameSpot, it's like, oh, my God, look at you. But then this thing called YouTube comes about, and all of a sudden, the influencers are these people just sitting in front of a microphone with a, with a bad webcam and a, their Gateway 2000 crappy stick mic. And all of a sudden, well, hopefully no one's using those Gateway mics anymore, but you know what I mean. Yes. But, but that becomes the influencer. Those become, that becomes the industry leader. You can find out information quicker and more trustworthy sometimes from a, a, a YouTuber, not always, because they do ad deals and brand deals they don't disclose, or maybe they should have, uh, but now it's regulated. But you see what I mean? Like Those are the people that are are now the, the, the industry insiders, so to speak. They're the ones that are flown out to these locations. They're the ones that play the Switch first. And people at IGN are sort of like, maybe they're lost in the shuffle. Yeah, I just don't think that... The unfortunate reality of the of the games media, I think, is just that... It, well, we were talking about generations, about how people grow up and what they grow up around and what they're into. And the kids that are growing up with YouTube and they're growing up with Twitch and the almost the idea of going to a destination online as opposed to going to a platform like Twitch or a platform like Twitter to find your news is yeah. is antiquated. So I just think, I don't want to say it's a dead end because I, I, I owe everything to IGN and great people over there and they're doing great and they're thriving. Uh, although a lot of their competitors aren't, but the it's changed. So yeah, it was, it was an, it was an amazing, I've described it as an amazing way to spend my twenties. So you appreciate that opportunity. Oh my God. Had, I'm like, super thankful, dude. I, I started as a game. I started as a writer on game facts when I'm writing NES guides when I was 14 years old, you were writing on game facts. Yeah. One of those crazy people. Yeah. And I wrote dragon warrior guides and mega man guides and Castlevania guides and you know, whatever. And when I was 17, they 
they started it, it's a nerdy story but IGN was once associated with GameFAQs and then they fell apart GameFAQs became kind of independent went with CNET the great GameFAQs Civil War of 2002 it, yeah exa- know, exactly and then so IGN wanted to start their own competitor and they did IGN Facts and so they were going and asking people for their, their stuff and they asked me for my stuff when I was 17 and I said yes and then they came back to me and said like do you want to write strategy guides for pay for our IGN guide site and that's how I got in when I was a kid so I went I wrote strategy guides and freelance for five years went to Northeastern for history I was an intern at IGN twice and when I graduated I was about to start grad school and they offered me a job and so I came out when I was 22 Wow, that, yeah. that's uh, not not totally dissimilar from someone like Chris Kohler who who did his own like newsletter when he was like a teenager. Mm-hmm. Like some of these people are savants or way too much time in their hands. When that was high, I had way too much time. When you're in high school, you, he's like, okay, I'm actually want to actually want to write and apply myself for the future. And here I was in high school, just playing Civilization two and, and not doing my summer reading list. Yeah. And that's what I was doing. Yeah, it was a way for me to. I, I have a. It's funny. I guess that's my compulsion was to write a complete guide for something. I still get messages all the time on Twitter being like, oh, I was on GameFAQs and I was playing Link to the Past or something and I realized I was using your strategy guide. And I'm like, that's, I like that these things exist in perpetuity. I literally wrote these things when I was 14 and 15 years old and they're still being circulated. But that's how I, that's how IGN found me. And then I, like I always say, IGN kind of creaked the door open for me and I just, I fucking kicked it off the hinges. I'm like, I'm in, I'm coming in. And you, and you went to Silicon Valley, you went to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and were paid just enough to barely survive in the Yep, I was paid. I was paid forty thousand dollars a year out of and, and what's so Woo! when you're out of college, it, that's like, oh my god, that's exactly right. And it's so funny. I got a. I was in forty Bo- grand. I was in Boston and Northeastern. I, I was in my apartment, and I was on you know Fox owned IGN at the time, and I was on the phone wow. with Fox recruiter, and I had already gotten the job offer. Fair and, and balance, and they were they were going over everything for me. Uh, and they're like, oh, all right, so the pay is going to be forty thousand dollars, and before it even like came out of her mouth, she was I was just like forty thousand. I'm like, okay, great. And and but and then you hear other stories being like bad negotiation. Yeah, no, because I, I was like, f- I think I had never even had a thousand dollars to my name at any time. But at that, you know, all really, I, is that all, true? All I did was in college was buy weed, buy beer. You didn't work you know, in college? Uh, yeah, I did. I worked freelance for IGN, and I was a landscaper and a groundskeeper uh, at Northeastern. But mow those lawns. Yeah, uh, yeah, mow lawns, pick up garbage, empty garbage cans. I worked a lot, uh, snow removal. But the money, you know. I, I was a huge pot. I mean, I still smoke, but I was a huge pothead in college and I bought games and I bought food. And so I just never, so when someone was like $40,000, I was just like, are you, and then fast forward to December of that year to the December, 2007, my student loans come due for the first time, $500 a month. And I actually started crying at my desk at IGN. Did you really? <laughs> because I was like, I have no, I have no way of paying this back. And then fast forward, life has been kind. I paid off my loans 10 years early. So yeah, everything worked out fine, but it was, uh, you know, it was dire, but it was, you were just honored and happy to be there. And it was, it was a dream. I was 22. It was a dream come true. $40,000 a year. I would have done anything for $40,000 a year at 22 years old. So, but I, now I'm 33 and I'm a little wiser and I make a little yeah, bit more money it, than that. It, it, yeah. $40,000 <laughs> in Wyoming is a ton of money. Not so much in San Francisco. I was in New Jersey. My first job at a, at a college was, I think I had an internship. Well, when I graduated, it was, it was the crash, the bubble of the tech crash and everything else in 2002. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get my first full-time job till two years later. I, I was working as a, um, intern at a publishing, educational publishing company. It paid though, thankfully the internship. That was like 25 hours a week. And living at home helped. It was, I was ashamed to live at home. I said, oh, I'm out of college. I'll be living on my own. No, not so much until a little bit later. But I was doing that, and I was a substitute teacher. And boy, did that get the idea of wanting to teach out of my head right away. Those, those brats, those overprivileged brats and those upper middle class and upper class high schools that I substitute taught up. Anyway, they thought I was a narc because I looked so young when I was 24. <laughs> Literally did. Some of the teachers said, get to class. I'm like, I'm a substitute. Some of the, some of the, the kids walking by 
started to say shit to me. Honestly, like, whoa, like, make like, me funny. They're in a group. I turn around and give them a look. Like, these are these are adult eyes, kid. <laughs> I will end you. And then, um, and it wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. I actually, the only good time I had substitute teaching was in middle school because I I, I taught children how to think about writing a narrative. Like, oh, write a short story. And I was brainstorming. I love writing narratives. In college, I wrote a couple of screenplays. I shot a movie in college. And then I moved out to the East, uh, West Coast, West Coast run, to do screenplays originally. I was like, oh, I'll write some screenplays and get into that. I, mean, I probably should move to L.A. for that. But L.A., I didn't like compared to San Diego. But anyway. There's, so, nothing, there's very little to like about L.A. Very little? Wow. <laughs> And I live there. Well, I live in Santa Monica, but yeah. So, so I, how did you get along with your colleagues at, at IGN? Was was it a you're at a school, 22, mm-hmm. learning how to how to survive in the mm-hmm. workplace? I hate working in cubicles in the office. I was great at it. I was very political, and I knew how to like pretend to care about my my coworkers' uh, weekends. Probably because I'm partly sociopathic, and I can I can pretend these things. But how did you do I, with, I, with your abrasive uh, Long Island attitude? It was great. I mean, I you know I was like the low man on the totem pole, and I climbed, and it was you know there's. There's, it's not hazing, and, and it certainly isn't the way it was. Like, I always reflect on how wildly inappropriate the environment was c- compared to what I assume it is now. Like, it, it was very loose and very wild in terms of not anyone. Sex do- parties? What are you talking oh, no, about? No, no, no. Just, like, just like, there's a flippancy in the way a person conducts themselves in an environment like that because it's a creative environment. And you hear that in all sorts of things. You hear that in animation studios. You hear about that in game studios where there's just like, you know... People are telling you know jokes and it's it's a little bit color jokes yeah a little bit inappropriate a little bit you know silly a little nothing nothing in, like nothing horrifying but it was it was uh, such a loose place you know you roll in between nine and ten some people roll in a little later you but some people stay a little bit later and it was there was a lot of camaraderie I think that the staff at IGN from like two thousand six to two thousand two thousand seven to two thousand twelve or two thousand thirteen is like the, I think the golden era of the site and I think a lot of people feel that way and slowly people peeled off we lost david clayman we lost you know eric brudvig we lost you know jim riley and all these guys that were kind of part of the dna and i looked around in 2014 at the end of 2014 when i quit along with the other three guys to start kind of funny and i looked around and i'm like i don't really know anyone here anymore except for the people above me and you know and and it's time for me to go it's like a new generation it's like the new class like like say by the bell the new class you know so it, but it was it was a lot of fun, and, and I owe a great deal to them. I am incredibly thankful and grateful for the experience they gave me because it changed my life. I mean, it completely changed my life. They didn't, I was just a kid on GameFAQs. They didn't, it could have been any one of us that they picked out, and I don't – I think some of it was talent, but I think a lot of it was luck. I think I, I always have said that. And so, um, I, you know, Per Schneider and, and Tal Blevins and those guys over there gave me a shot and, and cared about me, and I, I appreciate that, and I still love them, like, to the very core of my, like, like – my heart like i really really appreciate that and i always will so you and greg and the team started almost a new cottage industry of let's work on a website that's large that gives us a platform and we'll just leave and make tons of money on patreon and do our own thing and 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 basically have a have a good time and control our own destiny it happened with you it happened with uh brandon jones uh when game trailers went down Mm -hmm. and it happened with others and it, it created a sort of model that I'm very envious of. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it, we were, we were, you know, it, I think it's hard to get in or not hard to get in, but it's, it's more unlikely to find that kind of success now. I only think that there are a few people at game in games media that could really do it today. I, I there, and there are a few people that I'm surprised haven't done it. Um, but cause I, cause I guarantee you that the people that with large followings that work for like sites like IGN, they get paid a lot more doing their own thing than still being at IGN. Oh, oh my! I mean, there's no doubt about that. I, I, I guess I won't get, I make way more money than I made than I made at IGN. Now the situation, it's it's it kind of, it sounds kind of trite, but 
the money's nice and the money's good, but I, I actually really enjoy the content and the camaraderie with the audience. And I think that with authenticity and honesty, an audience comes and you kind of create a micro audience. You don't need a million people. I have my, you know, sacred symbols. My PlayStation podcast has a listenership of 50 or 60,000 people a week. It's that's not huge podcast beyond my PlayStation podcast at IGN did a million downloads a month. You know, it's, but, but I was making at that time, 65 or $70,000 a year. And so there's, there's, it's just weird to compare and contrast. Like you, the idea of finding your little niche and and people enjoying that content and some people paying for it and some people don't and everyone gets to enjoy it and so it, it wasn't as calculated as it sounds where it's like well sure. we're, gonna, you we're know, gonna you didn't know you you and Greg and the team didn't know like how big a success it would be. I mean I didn't know I didn't know that I'd ever make uh, six figures in my entire life or anything close to it and sure. and the and I'm super honored and super grateful for that experience and I remember I was at I was in Tokyo at Tokyo Game Show one of the times I went to Japan. Um, when we launched Kind of Funny's Patreon, as an aside, we were still at IGN, and we launched it because we were doing our podcast, and we were just hoping maybe to make a little bit of extra money and maybe pay for some equipment, and with no designs of leaving. And I remember being on FaceTime with them when I was in Tokyo when we launched because we launched and we immediately made like ten or twelve thousand dollars a month or something like that. Um, and and we ended up getting up to I think combined between the two Patreons when we actually left, I think we were making something like. I think it's like 80 grand a month or something like that off of Patreon. 80 grand. I think so. I split four ways. That's still a ton of money. Yeah. Well, we had a studio and we have employees and stuff. So it's not, it's not, it's not quite oh, more, as... more than the four employees. A couple of behind Yeah. The yeah. We have, we, we hired some people. We had really expensive equipment. We invested, uh, we really invested pretty much m- much of the profit into like making the That's... studio work. We had like a $40,000 led wall and beautiful cameras. And I know how much so... that table costs. I thought about getting it and I settled for this piece of garbage from uh, target. So it, it's, we, we, we reinvested it, but we had no idea that that was going to blow up into this amazing thing. And we're so, I think the, uh, I, I think I can speak for the guys that were so pleased that it, it ended up being a, mo- a useful model for other people to realize that they can sh- strike out on their own and do something on their own. And they don't need corporate backing. They need the backing of their audience. And if their audience is ride or die with them, which ours was and mine is and yours is and other people's are, they have an audience that really cares about them, then they're going to follow you where you go. They don't care about the brand name above you. And that's no insult to the brand name because without that brand name, like I said, I would have never had Kind of Funny. I would have never had CLS. Um, So... Yeah, so it's been an interesting and exciting experience, and it's been a wild ride, and and I've seen it from all angles, and it's cool. You know, it's it's exciting. And, and Greg is definitely a go getter. I, I met him at a uh, Pax East. He's going to appear in the documentary that I'm executive producing, not for resale. And he just seems like he's always on, and he's very professional, and he he has this down to a T. Yeah. So he seems like the perfect partner to to do this because unless you have someone that driven, you're not going to succeed. Like we we were we were all entrepreneurs. We're all doing our own businesses. Mm. We we are all small businesses in essence, and the amount of discipline you need for that and drive to succeed is very high. Even if you do start off with a built-in audience like you and him had. Right. Yeah. It required, you know, it was interesting because it really required kind of funny required a little bit of each of us to succeed and a little bit of what each of us brought to the table, which was interesting. Um, And I think what I, I think what I contributed to the equation was, uh, systemic and deep knowledge of the like of games. I think that that's what that, that's what I that's what I acknowledge. So, is there something happening? I, I hear a sound. I don't know what that. I think it's an alarm outside. This is what this is what you get working for yourself in your own uh, suburban neighborhood, and there's sounds outside your quote unquote studio. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's hard to soundproof this this gigantic room. But <laughs> it's, I, live in, I live in an apartment building on, near the beach on Santa Monica, and it's a, it's a similar situation. But the. The entire thing is, is that like, you know, Greg did bring that drive and that, that, um, that excitement and, 
you know, uh, you were his roommate, right? Yeah, he, he was my boss at IGN. We lived together for years. And, you lived with your boss, yeah, and uh, we we were thick as thieves, and um, and yeah, so like you know, uh, Nick brought like a really uh, a, a deep knowledge of production. Without him, we wouldn't have been able. To, we had no idea how to do anything on our own, and he's a he was a, he was the highest ranking person on IGN's video team, so he was you know he was there and he knew what to do, and we really needed that. And and I, yeah, I feel like I brought like the deep knowledge of the content. And I think that that was like the, the, you know, like the very deep, very nerdy understanding of these things. And I think that that's what, that was my contribution, I think, to the equation that made it work. And so I think there was a cool little, you know, cacophony of, uh, of people and, and, it was a fun experience, and the cacophony makes it sound like it was semi chaos. Um, well, it was sometimes it was. Cha- I mean, I mean, I think oftentimes it was chaotic. We we were just talking about the alarm right going off outside. Like something always breaks, something always goes wrong. You have to really stay patient. People get mad at each other. Like you know, during production, it's hard to have all of these. <laughs> Um, these different disparate elements together all the time. Why would you get mad at each other? Was it just uh, directions of of the show? Was it just I want to discuss this more than that? Oh Little no! Things? I mean, I mean, in the moment, if like if it's like you know we're recording a podcast for five minutes, and then you know our producers like I forgot to hit record. Oh, I forgot. By the way, it's, Colin, we got to redo this. It's, it's um, that's happened before. But no, that's what I'm saying. It's like it's not. Or not mean, recording it's, the it's, it's an accident. It's an accident that happened. And you yell at each other, and it's like ah oh, fuck. Like I said something really meaningful. Now it's now it's not. You know, it's it's just things in the moment when you're with someone. It's like when you're in a marriage or you're in a band. When you're with people over and over again, there's just it, it's there's conflict sometimes. I don't think it was ever like out of control, but. Um, Behind yeah. the podcast, yeah, kind it, of funny. Interview yeah, it show. was. It was actually, you know, it was pretty until the end. It was pretty tranquil in in most respects, but till the end. Um, but yeah, it's it was it was a great experience. I'm thankful to have known those guys and to have been able to work with them and learn from them. I hope I taught them a thing or two as well about how content is made too. And I think that we were able to kind of feed off of each other in, in a really positive way. And I think everyone's you know doing fine. So I have no I have no ill will towards towards that experience at all i think it was good. awesome yeah. that's good until the end which is how uh, i i discovered you uh because i am not a guy who frequented ign i don't you know i don't keep up i didn't know who greg miller was mm. much to i guess my chagrin i probably shouldn't know who he was he has a ton of followers he was like was he trending gamer yeah, one year? yeah tr- yeah which i don't really i still don't know boogie what that was really boogie yeah. 88 steven was one year um it's sort of it's sort of a strange thing i'm a trending gamer that means i'm a guy that i am an influencer i guess that you vote on anyway the whole point is this: is that what, what was uh, your tweet? What was that February of 2017? February, it was March. Mar- I think it was early March. Yeah, and uh, then that obviously brought you to your, I guess, phase three of your life. Or yeah, phase four, however you wanted to define yeah, it. Maybe the final phase. The, the final. <laughs> you know, hopefully, this isn't it for you and me. You know, but anyway. Um, and, and then so I'm like, okay, what's going on here with, with this tweet? I was like, okay, that tweet's kind of a weird joke. It's kind of. Maybe the not the best day to do it, but I see I see the the humor attempt, even though I don't think it landed. Yeah, which you might agree with, maybe maybe not. I mean, I, but yeah, then I, I saw, but then I saw the reaction, and I saw people jumping on you, and I'm like, okay, maybe I should see who these people jumping on you are. And then I say, oh, these are IGN people jumping on you. These are people that I find out, oh, this guy used to work for IGN, and people are going at you, and I'm, I'm then, and that really was piqued my curiosity because I didn't know, I don't know anyone except besides people like Destin and. Mm. and uh, Chris Kohler. I don't know anyone really in games journalism uh, that much. I, I've been divorced from it. Lucky they, you. I don't know if they know who I am, but that's okay. We we do right. different things. Right. But I, I saw people jumping on you, piling on, and that's really what set me off. Because even if, if I, I if I said Colin, if I was your buddy at the time, I said Colin, eh, that probably wasn't the best thing to do. Um, maybe you should 
retract that or say, hey, hey, guys, it was a joke. It didn't land. I apologize. I, w- I would not have agreed with people jumping on and, and piling on you because I, I, I always think that um, even if it's, if it's a bad joke, you, you should have the right to try to tell a joke as a comedian or even not. I've told jokes that have not landed with friends. And, I, and they said, oh, Pat, that was not the coolest thing to do. It's like, okay, you know what? I apologize. I didn't think. I didn't think about the context. Even if I look back at my old NES Punk episodes, I've done some probably, you're probably not familiar with, with the vast NES Punk library, but um, there's some jokes that I probably couldn't get away with even today that I did four or five years ago uh, based upon the climate. And that doesn't make those jokes wrong at the time, but it just means that, you know, times shift in terms sure. of what comedians can do. And that goes back to 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. You can't tell the same jokes. Eddie Murphy couldn't do what he did in those two stand-up specials he did in the 80s more. Absolutely not. He would get destroyed. And uh, that's a whole the conversation why. But that's really what annoyed me was that, okay, people that Colin used to work with are attacking him. So what's really going on here? Do they really dislike the joke? Do they dislike you personally? And why do they dislike you personally? And that's what really piqued my interest. And then when I saw, uh, you know, uh, in various degrees, uh, people distance themselves from you, that was sort of really telling to me. So that, to me, was more interesting at the time than anything else, was was the the huge backlash. So in your opinion, you've probably going, gone through this before talking to Joe Rogan and other people. Was it a combination of people disliking you from your past at IGN? Was it a combination of that with maybe your political stances? And this was a time that they could jump on you and try to end you? Is that what you think was going on? Or is it really just the joke? What do you think? It oh, no, really it's not, no one was offended by that joke. And I, by the way, I'm not at all sorry about it. Like that, that, you, that's, that's, so that's something that... Do you I'm, honestly think no one was really offended yeah, at all? Yeah. If you're offended by that joke, there's something wrong with you. Like that, that's, that's, that's like you, my... And you stand by that, that sort of double down. Stance. Yep, 100%. Okay. Like it's, it's, it was a joke about my girlfriend. It would have only worked on that day. It was a joke. You know, I don't obviously hate women. My girlfriend that it, the joke was about... Still with me, still talks a lot, still pretty loud sometimes. That was what the joke was about. It was about peace and quiet, a day without a woman. It was supposed to be about her, it, you know. So, you know, and I, I've said it before. I come from a very matriarchal Italian family full of many women, you know, like that are like in power positions in my family where the men are like, you know, kind of subservient to these to these women. And so I always found it like kind of funny where I was like, this is totally not my experience growing up. My experience growing up actually is is being quite respectful and quite uh, adherent to what a woman is telling me, whether it's my mom or my grandmother or my aunt or whatever the case might be. And so I, t- I took offense to like the entire idea of like, well, he's a, you know, just at a baseline, I like, go, oh, he's, he's sexist or whatever. And I'm like, that's just completely insane. Well, you expect responses like that on Twitter because Twitter is, could be going down history as the worst thing ever for our society. Yeah, it's like, awful. It's terrible. No, it's uh, awful. And more people are unplugging. They're, they're now doing studies about how social media and how we acquire knowledge uh, via our phones and tablets, it's actually rewiring how we learn things in our brains. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, children growing up with this stuff, how they are acting as adults 30 years from now. That aside, um, I'll just disagree with you slightly because I do think people could have been offended, honestly. And, but, that, but, but that's the thing, though, is that people can be offended by something, but it doesn't give them the right to try to end your career necessarily. Yeah, and I well, I really... I really don't see what was so offensive about that joke. Like, like what? Like, honestly, what is so offensive about it? Well, it was the whole thing. It it was it was a protest against women not being paid equally and treated equally for that day. Uh, I think Trump had just uh, sent out roughly a week or two before that he was trying to cut funding. I believe the Planned Parenthood and things that could have directly affected women. So I think there was like a climbing at the time, building Mm -hmm. up to that point to that uh, the 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 day without uh, women uh, movement. Mm -hmm. So I think it wasn't isolated. I think there was this buildup of holy shit. What, what's going on right now? It's a, hash, so, it's so, a hashtag movement. It's, 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 it's total. 
I don't know. It's like it's if people want to participate in in and positively participate to try to affect change, I would I think that that's great. I think it's great to empower women and pay, women should be paid equally, all those kinds of things. But you know, people make fun of hashtags every day. People make fun of serious hashtags on Twitter every day and demean them every day. And so that's that's. And so you I, saw that just as a another rung in that sort right, of right. Where it's just like it's just like what's t- we, I'm not t- trying to take the piss out of your movement. Slacktivism. You, you looked at it as I'm making it. I'm making it. Yeah. Well, it certainly is. But I make it as you know. I'm, I'm making a silly joke and I move on with my life. We all move on with my life. And that's what I'm saying. Like, did anyone really lose sleep and toss and turn over this joke? And it like the person who it was about certainly didn't. And like you know. I talked to um, my buddy that still works at IGN, Brian Altano, on my show, where I was like, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about it. And I'm like, I am sorry that it came to this point and that, like, you know, people, you know, like, it, it almost got out of control. Like, you, you know, certainly don't want a moment like that to define your career. Right, exactly. And the only reason, the only reason I'm bringing this up now is because, on, that first, that's how I found out about you. Mm-hmm. And then I defended you um, on uh, without Ian on my podcast because Ian was sick at the time. And I wonder what would have happened if Ian was on the podcast at the time. It's a whole other conversation. Uh, but... It's it's interesting that that sort of gave you another life in an essence because you became a lightning rod at the time for okay this is PC gone too far or you're now um, a target of the quote unquote SJWs that gave you a launching pad though for, for your current career at the time it, it did but I, but the funny and ironic thing about it is that and and it goes back to your question about why were people really upset about it and I've said it before and I and I think it's true it was a political hit and like. I was an open and avowed conservative in a liberal media, in a very liberal media. I still am conservative. And, you know, Ooh. there goes my nerd and mend a bottle. Here, I'll put this, I'll put That's it, okay. I'll put it over here for you. And, uh, nerd. you know, I, to me, I, I tried to be, I tried to put positivity into the world and I tried to affect people's lives in a positive way. And I know I have, and I know I continue to, and I've tried to remain focused on that and if people want to reduce me to like some silly joke that's so transparent and it's like and it's in kind of the uh, the shading that that I look at it in in terms of it being a political hit of getting someone that you've wanted to get for a long time I mean that's that's the way I that's the way it is that is the, what happened and it's it's really not up for debate it happened to me and I like and I and I witnessed it and I know how it went so if I was if I was a different person if I had different politics, if I was in a different place, then that nothing would have happened the way it happened. So with you me. think? So you think? Especially, I want to focus on the people that knew you personally yeah. that came after because that, that would, I don't care what some random ass person says. Mm. And they say, "Oh, uh, Colin, I think he is." Uh, they're thinking, "Oh, look at this misogynist uh, tweet in their heads." I'm going to go after him. I don't care about that. That's going to exist no matter what. There's going to be extreme thinkers on left and right. They're going to take something and run with it. We've right. seen it. I'm more concerned about the people that you personally knew that figured out this is a time I want to go after this guy and end him. And it, it, you, if you think it was uh, totally because of your political stances, uh, I'm not going to disagree uh, with, with, with that. But maybe was there a possibility that this was just their chance to get back at you? Maybe something in the office 10 years ago or five years ago? I don't think so. Or, or, or they felt slighted by you in any way? You think it was just politics? Let's let's go after him. Let's end I think, him. Well, I think that games media is a small bubble of people that virtue signal to each other. And I hate that term. I don't really use that term. I don't use the term SJW. I don't use these terms. But I think that that's an effective way to explain what I'm trying to explain. And they have to virtue signal to each other like, oh, that's the bad guy. He's the bad guy. He's the target. So going after you makes themselves feel better? Well, it makes them... I, I don't know if it's that. I think a lot of these people are miserable, frankly. But I think that it makes them look good to each other. And, you know, and it's it's... 
to make it seem like it's everyone that knew me like turn on me that's not true no no you know, no, no like it like, was obviously it wasn't everyone like but Destin Legary and Damon Hatfield and sure. Brian Altano and Per Schneider and all these guys and well didn't Brian favorite, didn't Brian make a joke at your expense during that time yeah he did but that's I don't mind I mean Brian's made many jokes at my expense okay but and I don't I'm not offended by that because I'm not a baby you know like sure. like uh, it, like that's totally fine and I like Brian a lot um but what my favorite thing is that like the some of the most supportive people of me at the time and since have been were the women that I worked with, and I think that a lot of the you know whether it was uh, Christine Steimer or Leah Jackson who's now at Riot and other people I was really quite heartened by that because I think they knew that you know I was kind of like they never had an experience with me in the office or like anyone else like anyone else where I was telling a stupid joke around them or doing I treated everyone with respect in an egalitarian way I worked hard I used to bring the associate editors to lunch every week to talk to them about their problems. If there was anything I could do for them um, to, you know, cause there's a, you know, there's a strata at IGN and some, some of the younger and lower people might be afraid to voice an opinion in a sure. meeting or, and so I would like to be their conduit. I really tried to be a positive force in their lives. And um, so with some of the people mad at me at IGN, I don't even know many of these people and I don't care, but like for the, you know, the people that I did know that turned on me, it was it was what it was like I, I it, you it felt was, that the word most obviously versus some random ass person right it was it was certainly painful it certainly is painful to, to I remember I remember happen. one in particular you said that you helped like uh, I think promote his career really helped them out and they felt it was their obligation to jump jump on you with everyone else in politics I, I mean I I just think it's somewhat obvious you know I get I'm so tired of talking about this not that I mind talking about it here but because it really the answers are the same every time my audience the people that have listened to this are not hearing anything new from me on this in, in terms of like. You know, I care. I care still a great deal about people there. I still have good relationships with some people there. I think a lot of people, you know, acquaintances come and go, friendships come and go, and the the difficult thing is just making it seem like, um, or not making it seem that it happens in public. You're not able to kind of like deal with it on your own and kind of uh, sort through the situation on your own. It's all kind of happening with a megaphone and a camera on you at all times, and people are celebrating your downfall and. Um, doing all those kinds of things. And what was important to me at the time, you know, you know, Pat, I had like a, it was an inflection point for me because I always talked about like the importance of humor, the importance of like the, the destructive, the destructive nature of PC culture and this kind of far left culture that I really loathe. And like, you know, I think that like, I think that a lot of good, normal left wing people and good, normal progressive people and Democrats and whatever are being caught up in this, this whirlwind that they don't even want to be a part of but that they're associated to, you know, by, you know, a degree of separation. And to me, it was like, you know what? I told a joke about my girlfriend. I am not sorry for it. I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm going to, and I'm going to stand my ground. And that's, and that's what I did. And like, I told Rogan and like, I told Dave Rubin when I was on their shows, you know, a couple of times, it was a win. Like it it ultimately was a win. Like if people just stand their ground and say like, listen, like I'm not going to succumb to the horde just because you guys want to destroy someone today. It's not going to be me. Well, let's you know? well, let's 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 uh, take a step back at what type of horde it is. It's a Twitter horde. Horde. They weren't going to, you know, no one was going to come up to your face in a restaurant and say, "How dare you have said that joke?" It was all on social media. Yeah, but but Pat, that's kind of reductive. Like my entire life is online. My career is online. That's just about as real as it gets when you when you're. So entire... you th- so you think that 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 backlash at that time could have affected you going forward? Pat, I mean, perhaps. it could have destroyed my life. Like it, like you know, like everything I had built and like all the things that I tried to do and and the and really the the decency and goodness that I did try to put into the world. And, you know, I was telling someone on a podcast, actually, I, I interviewed David Jaffe um, yesterday for my show, who's a buddy of mine, for people that don't know, Twisted Metal, God of War. Um, and I was telling him, you know, people have come up to me in the past and still come up to me today 
and they'll say like, oh, I played Castlevania because of you, or I love, sure. I know you love Mega Man, and I love Mega Man, and, and that's great, and that's fun, and I love that kind of camaraderie, but it's the people that come up to me and say like, you know, um, you saved my life, because in 2012, on this random podcast, I don't even remember recording, you had talked about how you have anxiety, and you're depressed, and, and, and that you didn't want people to feel alone in their lives, and you, and you, and you always talk openly about that to let people know that you know, and I tell my audience now, if you need me, DM me on Patreon. Ask anyone who has ever DM'd me on Patreon and answer every message, you know? and You answer ev- every message? Every message. I'll oh. show you. Everyone. I get between... That's why you don't sleep. <laughs> you know, like, I care about my audience and I care about their well-being. I gave away $5,000 out of my own pocket last year to my audience to to buy their school books. I bought 10 of, the, 10 of their... 10 people their college books for a semester to help them to unload some of the financial pressures on them. Man, you know, that's I, too much for school books. Like, like I, I, I went, I'm, getting, I'm getting bad flashbacks to spending money. Yeah, I, I, I went to Northeastern. I was a history major and, and I spent a ton of money on books. So I was like, how can I get, I made a lot of money. How can I give back some, something to my audience that means something to me? I'm not, it's, I don't try to make it a one-way street. And so it's the things that people come up to me. And, and like I told David Jaffe, when someone comes up to me and says like, I named my son after you because you oh. affected my life so positively. Wow, okay. It's like, I'm like, that's really sweet. And I try to remain focused on the way that I've positively affected people and try to, even though the, 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 um, the narrative about me in some corners is incre- incredibly negative, incredibly defamatory, and incredibly unfair, I try to remain focused on the people that care about me and that I care about and how I can help them and how I can entertain them and how I can inform them. And it's worked out great. And I, I think that this is a, a forged in fire kind of situation. I could have backed down. I could have shrunk into a little ball and cried my way back to Long Island and worked like a new Do you think jo- that would have been a possibility? If, if that would have affected you to that point, you would have went back to may, Long may, Island? I mean, who knows? You know, like, you know... But I didn't. I was like, you know, and I proud of, I'm proud of myself. And some people don't like it, and that's okay. And some people think I'm brash or, and I'm, or I'm arrogant and all those kinds of things. And I try not to be those things. But I didn't back down. Well, I'm not well, going to be fucking destroyed Well, you're by definitely people. brash, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because I'm brash too. And, and that gives us, I, I guess, our moxie to, to be who we are and what we do. It's not necessarily that. Sometimes we're rough around the edges. We're unrefined. That's, that's partially a Northeast thing. I just went back in Jersey this past weekend. People are a little bit rough yeah that's how i that's how we grew up but but yeah that's how we grew up you know italians northeast it's like this sort of weird sort of uh conflation of 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 not necessarily have the smoothest upbringing in terms of being you know being able to deal with the delicacy of maybe people on the west coast who are more laid back right that's but that's what i was trying to get at maybe maybe i I didn't make the point clear enough that maybe there was uh some sort of a cultural difference between you and the people you're working with at some point and they just didn't like you because of that because people haven't liked me because of that when i come out to the west coast uh and, and talk to some people and i'm more i think of a combination of east and west coast i couldn't stand some of the people on the east coast one of the reasons i moved out here i couldn't i couldn't stand the abrasiveness when i go back to see my family i can't deal with them constantly it's a whole time everything's yelling yeah oh yeah i know i know all about that pass the parmesan it's like can you say it <laughs> Can you say it calmly to me? Oh, it, it, and there is, and it is, it is a stereotype. But there's a reason that's a stereotype because right. there's a lot of that. Like whenever I talk to my sister, it's like everything's at this volume. Like Monica, let's relax a little bit. We're talking about my mortgage. This is, we should be calm about this. Right, right, right. So that's why I think sometimes people, sometimes people don't give you a chance because of your culture. They well, rub you, you get, they get rubbed the wrong way because right. they're not used to it. Right. Well, and but the, what's funny is, is that. I don't know. There are certain people. I'm not going to name names because I don't. It's not important. But like, there are certain people that I was surprised didn't have my back, right? And people that I had helped in the past, people that slept on my couch when they didn't have no place to live, people that like would had no problem drinking my booze, eating my food, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. 
And I try to be, you know, I think one of the things that comes along with an Italian Northeast upbringing is a, is a, a welcoming nature. You want to, oh, you want to come over and you need a place to stay? Yeah, and you I got some booth? lasagna left yeah. over. The fridge. Like, I'm happy what to have it. So, so that was surprising. But again, I'm not surprised that some people wanted to virtue signal and kind of wanted to choose their side. And that's totally fine. But I am so grateful and thankful for the Destin Ligaris, for the Brian Altanos, for the Damon Hatfields and all, and the Pear Schneiders and all these people that that didn't turn their back on me and that embraced me and that publicly embraced me. Because you know what? The, the thing that really bothers me... Do you think they've been affected by their by their support of you? I don't think so. I mean, if they have, it doesn't matter to them. And I, and I, and I, really, respect, I re- really respect the shit out of that because they can feel a certain way about me and we can have our problems and our differences. But the people that bother me the most and the people that still bother me the most are the people that DM me or text me and are afraid to say anything publicly, but will say many things privately about how, how unfairly I was treated and um, how much bullshit it is and X, Y, and Z are cowards and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, but you're DMing me and you won't even say anything publicly because you don't want to be uh, brought down. And I don't yeah, want... It's, it's the association, right? Right. And, so, I, and so... I, I don't want to play that. I don't play that game with other people and I'm not going to have that game uh, played does, with me. Does either. that offend you somewhat more even in a way where yeah. people that won't publicly... Have you have your back and there's obviously there's a loyalty aspect to this that that's affecting you. Yeah, I am. You know, I was just talking to I just went out to, to uh, drinks with my uh, good friend that lives down here. And I was talking to him about, you know, you can say many bad things about me. I have I have um, sharp traits, as we were just talking about the brashness being one yes. of them. But I believe in honor and I believe in like, you know, respect and pride and all those kinds of things and treating people the way they deserve to be treated. And. I can't let the situation. It's all Twitter's I, fault. I, but but it's beyond that, right? Like it's it, it, Twitter is obviously a bad thing. But again, I'll reiterate that like this happened to me. This wasn't like something that was like a digital thing that like didn't exist in my life. This happened to me, and um, I like I had a well, I didn't have to. They didn't ask me to. But I, I walked away from a business I founded, and it was one of the two major pillars of in order to to get away from what I felt like you know was a destructive environment for me. And I also didn't want to out of respect to the guys. Drag them, drag them down. Yeah. I thought it was unfair. I sold sure. my shares back. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a, it's, it was a very lucrative deal for me. I'm not going to act like it was like this thing. I, I always, I always, I always, I, I, it was always funny to me when people were like, "Oh, he lost his company and he got kicked to the curb and stuff." And I'm like, "You have no idea what you're talking about." I, but, I just sort of, but I, it's, but it's, it's, uh, but to me, I, I walked away from them out of respect, particularly out of respect to Greg, because I didn't want the brand to be associated sure. with with this anymore and my intention was not to do anything other than the right thing by the people that were most important sure. and and I, closest in proximity to me i just go back to social media giving people a soft uh you know a false bravado it it, it, it amplifies voices obviously that wouldn't be amplified normally um and their opinion in the large scheme of things it, it doesn't matter if so so if i don't check twitter for four days and people are saying i'm not applying this to you your situation was bigger than something but if i didn't check social media or twitter for five days and walked away from it and i had some bad things said about me if i didn't realize it and came back next week and did my own thing i'd probably be be just the same just at least for what i do it wouldn't matter to me it would be sort of be like okay people said shit but you know what the people that uh voiced the loudest are usually the minority when it comes to these it's like yelp People that are going to leave reviews or usually either they had the most horrible experience or they had a good experience. And the 90% in between don't give a shit. You know why? They have normal lives to lead. They're not crazy. They don't need to hear their own voice or, or to be self-righteous in typing up that bad review of that sushi restaurant. They'll just never go to that sushi restaurant ever again if it really affects them to that extent. Right, right. And that's how I look at social media. And that's why I think it's so damaging and how it's been really bad, not just for, for these sort of issues, but to uh, to, to uh, our electorate, to 
to us in terms of being civil to each other and acting as common citizens on on the same plane it it's been very destructive it, it's yeah. been, it's been been awful maybe that's a segue out of this uh topic but i just the, the more I look at it, I don't think it's good for us at all. Uh, and and now even I'm like checking Twitter and being like, oh, look at that happen. Oh, I, I personally just got on a Twitter moment uh, yesterday about the PlayStation Classic. It's like, oh, that's a win for me. But really, who cares? Right. It's it, it's almost like a Black Mirror sort of point system. Like, oh, look, I raised my stature on social media. But but really, it doesn't matter. When I go when I go when I go order a order a pizza, hey, I'm Italian uh, or. <laughs> or when I, I, I walk into a, a bar, I can say, hey, I was in a Twitter a moment. And people be like, uh, okay, what do, you want to, what do you want to drink? What do you want to eat? How do, okay, who cares? And, th- and that's where I come back to with social media. Right. I, well, I think that the negative aspect of it, it's so funny because, again, I was just discussing this recently with someone uh, in a private conversation, which was the, the, the schadenfreude aspect of it is so, you know, and schadenfreude being like the the, the enjoyment for people that don't know. I'm the, part German. Yeah, I know that. I know. But when I use that word, people hey. are like, what the hell are you talking about? It's the enjoyment of watching someone's downfall or suffering, right? And it's... It, that has been amplified a great deal by Twitter. And what I said to someone, I'm like, and this is a hard thing to say without sounding like an asshole, but it's, but it's true. I think is that it's easy for people to take shots at you when no one's ever going to take meaningful shots at them because they're not in a position where it's easy to be like, like sometimes I, I envy like the quote unquote normal person with a normal job and the normal house and the normal life and whatever, because like, it's easy for you to take punch at me and, and, and contribute to my, the negativity that is thrown at me when when you're you can, when you're an anonymous kind of person that can just sure. walk through, and that's not an insult to that person. It's basically saying like there, it's not a two way street, and I think that that's actually part of the problematic problematic nature of it as well. But I've been I used to be way worse and way more brash on Twitter and long before what happened. And you've softened and, with old age. Well, I tried to <laughs> I tried to like I really do believe in the adage that you get what you get back what you put out there. Sure. And every once in a while, I'll be snarky and every once in a while, I'll be negative. But what I also try to be positive, I also try to celebrate things and try to turn people onto the things that I'm doing or just put out a nice picture or whatever the case might be. And, I, and again, I'll Cat come me. back to the, I'll come back to the point of like, I am just super grateful that, you know, the incident wasn't isolated because when I launched CLS, um, people let me know loud and clear that they were with me and that I, and that I wasn't, I wasn't alone in this space and, and that there were many, many, many people that thought what happened to me was unfair and wrong. And they let it be known, whether it was with a note or a tweet or with a donation on Patreon or a, a view on one of my videos. And it, w- it that was heartening. And it was it was it, for as anxiety inducing as everything that happened to me was. And for as much as I already suffer from anxiety and already suffer from depression and how much worse that made it for me. At the same time, I was uplifted. You know, I did episode 50 of Fireside Chats recently. And I was talking, my girlfriend interviewed me and I like sat in the interviewee chair, right? And, uh, and I was, I hysterically cried during it because oh, I didn't see that. And it really touched my audience because I, I didn't cry because of what happened. I didn't cry. I cried because I was like, when I needed an, when I needed my audience to get my back and to help me and like to, and to think back into their own memories about when I might've been there for them in, in a way. And like I was talking about, whether it was a, a game recommendation that changed their lives or whether it was me telling them that they should go seek help if they're having a mental health problem or whatever the case might be, anything on the spectrum, they came out, you know, like they really showed up and it brought, I was starkly crying on the podcast. I was like, it was, it was, it was life changing. That saved my life, you know? And like, I'm really grateful and I'm making me well up now. I'm really grateful and thankful for that. And for that audience. And so what I do now, Pat, is for them, 
and for the audience uh, um, that enjoys any of my shows is I just leave it all out in the field. I know what you guys did for me. I know that you guys were there for me. I know that you know who I am and that this, this shit that's said about me is nonsense. It's nonsense and I'll fight to the death about it. And so I'm going to give you the best possible content I can give you and I'm going to put all of my, my all into what I do for you and I hope that you understand that the reciprocity of how grateful and how thankful I am for that. And it goes back to what we were saying about IGN about how I'm thankful for them too. I go through my life with gratitude and I really do in these different phases and, and this is the most recent phase of gratitude that I'm in right now. So how do we get back to some form of civility besides uh, eliminating Twitter and Facebook from our lives? How do we get back to... Uh, not overreaching with our uh, emotions when we see something that bothers us and, and uh, forming tribes uh, left and right. Mm. How, how do we get to that point? Uh, I think that uh, personally, most people are not there. Most people that are well-balanced are not the ones going on social media and spouting things. They're the ones that are living productive lives with their friends and family and earning incomes and just right. want get, to get through day-to-day. Most of us have the same goals and aspirations daily. That's what I, I firmly believe. I well, believe that too. Most of us are not the left 10% or right 10%. Most of us are somewhere in the middle 60 to 70%. I, I firmly believe that. But, but that's not the message that comes across. That's not the message that comes across social media. Not just that. Doesn't mes- it's not the message that comes across uh, on, on cable news. It's not the message that comes across because it doesn't sell it doesn't sell that hey we were all on the same page we all agree to like 70 percent we're all in agreement on most issues really when it comes down to 80 percent even we're all kind of in agreement on on some of these things but it's like the 20 percent that right. gets divided I, I, how, how do we do that I, and i'm not sure you have an answer i'm not sure i have an answer uh at this point i guess there has to be flag bearers ones that sort of bridge the divide between uh you know the extremes and it's just it does it's not pulling over to the other side it's just sort of pulling back to the middle a bit. I mean, I have conversations with um, my one of my friends who's a YouTuber who is probably borderline left-wing. And when we have conversations, I'm pretty much somewhere around the middle. I float uh, left-center in some stuff. I float right-center in some stuff. I'm pretty much somewhere in between there. And we have conversations and real conversations that are productive because he'll try to pull me one way and I'll try to pull him another. And at the end of most of these conversations, whether it's about... Um, economic issues, whether it's about social issues, we usually end up pulling each other a little bit closer. Maybe not 50%, but, you know, 10%. We come to an, at least an understanding of the point of view of the other side. And I'm hoping there's a way we can do that uh, on a large scale. I don't see it right now, though. I just don't. To me, it's about... Well, you were talking about tribalism, and politics is a huge passion for me. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I consider myself right-wing, but I, I consider myself center-right. Where I come from on Long Island and in New York, we have a term called Rockefeller Republican, which is a, which is a moderate Republican, or what some people might even call a rhino, a Republican in name only, mm-hmm. based on Nelson Rockefeller and kind of the Republican traditions in, in New York, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican and Long Island's only president. And, and established a national park. So yeah, yeah. And had it, workers' rights as, as, exa- as, a, exactly, as a platform. Yeah. Exactly. And to me, I feel like you have to just call them as you see them. And you were talking about um, – and, 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 and you call them as you see them, by the way, regardless of how it matches up into your tribe, right? You see that all the time. And I've done that for a long time. I was a socially liberal and am a socially liberal – I'm not a Republican anymore, but I was a socially liberal Republican. I was for gay marriage 10 years before Barack Obama was for gay marriage. You know, And it, it, so when you say that some people are going to be mad at you or some people are mad at me for the things I believe, my question always is, what are you mad about? Like what? Like what is the issue that, that I have? Like what, like what is the opinion that I hold that makes you so upset? Is it that is it that I am for transgender rights and made a massive video about how I think transgender people are treated inappropriately? Is it about race, you know, race in America and how I, 
I came out when I was still a kind of funny and made a huge video about Ferguson and the and the the plight of Black America and and how and how downtrodden they've been and how they need to be uplifted. Is it that is that's what offended you? Is it, it was it offensive when I gave a significant donation to Planned Parenthood last after Donald Trump was was nom- nominated to to make a point? It's like I don't understand what people want from me. It's almost like they hate they hate this they vilify this version of me that does not exist. Well, you it, know? well, there's also a, there's a lack of nuance of thought of, of how someone is. It's it's easier to say you're this guy. You believe this long laundry list of things, and oh, maybe half of them you really don't. But you know, it's easier just to qualify you as that, and that's happening on both sides right now. Anyway, you see the Democrats being split apart with these getting primaried out. You have people that are going more left and getting rid of some of the moderates or, or left leaning. You have Republicans are fighting uh, primaries with each other, and it's finally happening there. But it's still you know an us versus them sort of I think mentality. No, it is, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is like I don't I don't think being I'm not I'm pro choice, but I don't think being pro life is a bad it's a, that's a righteous stance, and I don't think that the, deserves to be ridiculed. I've always said, knowing Trump voters, you know Long Island voted for Donald Trump. I'm not a Trump supporter. I left the Republican Party because I was so disgusted by him when he won the nomination. But when people say, like, when the people kind of qualify their statements by saying, like, well, uh, at least I'm not a Trump supporter. I didn't vote for Trump. That's what people always say, right? Like, I didn't vote for Trump. But, you know, but whatever the case might be. But he did this good thing or whatever. And I'm like, we're, we're in such a hostile place that people can't even, like, cast a vote without being ridiculed. People can't think that, like, you know, I think Donald Trump's done some good things. I think he's done lots of bad things. You know, like, it's <laughs> six of one half dozen of the other. And you're like, you can't even, you can't even say things like that. And I, you know, I take heart, Pat, in the fact, like what you're saying is like, people are being primaried on the left. People now are being primaried on the right. Donald Trump's clearly going to get primaried when he runs in 2020, if which is, asks. which is unheard of, you know, to primary a, a sitting president. It hasn't happened since, um, since Carter was primaried in 1980. So, um, and he lost, and, you know, well, he got his ass beat by Reagan in 80, but he, that hurt him a great deal getting primaried by Kennedy. But, the point I'm trying to make is the beauty of it, Pat, and I think this is where you and I find a lot of common ground, um, is the people that are being cast away by the progressives and the people that are being cast away by the far right. It's a new party. We just need to, it's a, it, there's a new center. We do agree on a lot of things. I think, like you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to guess, right, about your, I don't know anything about your politics. When you say you go to the right a little bit, you probably believe in a little bit of lower taxation. You might want the government a little bit out of your life, right? You don't want the government in your life too much. Economically is where I go furthest right. Right, and that's everyone's answer, by the yeah. way, when you talk about it. And everyone's answer on the left is, well, I believe in the freedom of the individual. I, I take that to an extreme. I think drugs should be de- decriminalized. I think polygamy should be legal. I think prostitution should be legal, all those kinds of things. But that's that's a, almost a libertarian slant. But we can both agree that, like, I think that, like, a woman has a right to choose. A man has a right to marry another man. Mm-hmm. A person has a right to identify as a gender of their choosing. I believe those things as well. And in this great center mass is what I would call the reasonable center. Like, people that are just normal, that don't want to ca- that don't want to cast away people that don't agree with them, that don't... I would rather... If you and I have a disagreement about half of the policies that we agree in, but we agree with half of them, I would much rather work with you on half of those policies that we agree sure. on than, than focus but, on the things that we don't agree on. And that's the exact inverse of where we are right but now. But is it the issue of who is the type of people that get into politics to begin with? We have a, a huge amount of lawyers that are in the Congress and Senate, and they're not ones that like to compromise. They are the, the least likely to compromise. And we have a ton of people like that right now. We have uh, There's a consolidation of power, not having term limits. So people feel like they don't have to compromise. Maybe if they're going to be in power, they think forever. It's like, oh, I'll do whatever. I want screw you 
Uh, I'm the senator. It's been around for 30 years. Right. There's a lot of issues that we can get. Now we got time to talk about it. I, I always say real quickly that we need more reasonable people that are more center in government. But they, again, it's back to the people who the people are going to yell at us in social media, not the people that are happy with themselves or have a nice job and family necessarily. You know, maybe not. And those are the people that are getting into politics. It's almost like you almost need a draft system for, for, for politicians. It's, I'd almost feel better having a random ass draft of people say, hey, uh, you're a, you're a, you're an engineer. Hey, you work at a, a coffee shop. Why don't you try this? Why don't you see, you see if you can make something work, if you can compromise right. versus someone seeking power, seeking position where normally you would not be a person that says, Oh, I want to be in the limelight in front of cameras on Capitol Hill, deciding things that affects millions of people. The people that seek those things are not necessarily those that should be making those decisions. I always maintain that, that one of, one of the founding fathers, uh, what the greatest arguments was, you know what? The common man should be in politics, but you know what? They should get the hell away after a while. Is this, originally, it was, okay, you do your bidding for the government, you do your, 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 your service, you get the hell out, like serving in the military. You right. don't have to be there for 40 years, right. well, years. Well, when you think about the cross-section of the founders and the founding generation, um, and this is what I went to college for, so this is a, this is totally my wheelhouse, and I love this. I love these kinds of conversations. Oh, geez, I'm what, gonna be over my head. Well, no, I don't think so at all. When, <laughs> when you look at when you look at the cross section of even the Sons of Liberty, or like the Massachusetts delegation, and the people that you know were at the center of the revolution, you had someone like John Hancock, who was the richest man in the colonies. John Hancock owned one four hundredth of the entire value of the colonies. He was incre- he was unfathomably rich, like like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, rich uh, by today's standards. But then you had uh, uh, a brewer, Sam Adams who had didn't really have two nickels to rub together and you had uh you know you had coopers and you had uh blacksmiths and you had professional soldiers that fought in the French and Indian war and this kind of hodgepodge of people and you're right the intent was with the house of representatives was the same as the continental congress to both of them which was like we're going to send the best and brightest that's a cross section of what we do and a cross section of what our colony or our state represents and we have the construct you know so i would love for the house today to be like there's a construction worker and a teacher and you know maybe a doctor and all these kinds of yeah, things. who but, actually represents the common man right that they're, that they're constituents right are. exactly but we don't have that right we have the idea of the the professional politician is quite foreign to the founding generation not that there weren't any but the fact that, like, we have to remember that the the adage that George Washington turned down basically a monarchy is true, mm-hmm. and that's that's unfathomable. He was ba- he was. Uh, I was recently, uh, I think it was on a recent podcast. I was talking about, you know, we can't fathom. There's no one in American in American history, including Lincoln, including FDR, and other beloved characters that was as beloved by his countrymen, contemporary to his life, as George Washington was. Sure unanimously elected by the way to the presidency by the congress and to me i i look at that and i'm like we we need more great people but but we're we're in a reductive position now what's happening with kavanaugh right now the supreme court justice is really interesting because i don't know if what he did was what he did what he's accused of doing what he's accused of doing he did or not i don't know the answer right but what i do know is that going in long before it kind of blew up in his face and this whole this whole sexual assault thing happened what i do know is that we had a very unusual situation where I think 43 Democratic senators came out and said that they're just straight up not going to vote for him. And, or, or, and, or were they still annoyed, though, by Obama's uh, nominee against Stonewall? Yeah, and, and to, to the, yes, and to, the point, and to that point, and to the point of being, you know, truthful and honest and fair, I was a very loud, and you guys can go look it up and read old things I wrote in old podcasts, I was a very loud vocal proponent that that was wrong. That Obama, that Merrick Garland should have been a Supreme Court justice. That he should, yeah, that, Garland's pretty moderate, right? Yeah, yeah, and and it's just it's what's fair is fair, and what's good for the goose is good for the gander, over sure. and over and over and over again. And so the point I'm trying to make is that Supreme Court justices used to get, I think, um, I think Kennedy, who's leaving, I think was nominated to the court something like 97 to two. 
And now you're going to have a, a Supreme Court pick if he gets through, if all these things about him aren't true. I don't know. Uh, he can get through 51 to 49 with or 50-50 with a tie break just based on politics. And that's that, I think, is very emblematic and very illustrative of where we are because it was never supposed to be a political position at all. But now even no. that's been politicized, you know, and it's well, it's 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 a sports game now. Right. That's what it's become. Not just not just the people that are on the team, so to speak, but the people following it. So, oh, we won this one. You lost that one. Ha ha ha. We won the election. Ha ha ha. You didn't. And that's not a good way to run a country or think about your country because we are all it's, it's corny. We're all on the same team. When, when laws get passed, it affects all of us. So why not pass the most the, the most comprehensive laws should be done with the most common ground. Otherwise, where are you at? No, where are you at? Yeah, because no, then yeah. it all it comes. What goes around comes around. It's like, oh well, you, we didn't like uh, this law. Wait until we're in power. We're going to show you. And I just can't imagine that going on forever and being constructive. And we've already seen it not being constructive. Right. Ex- that's exactly right. And you know, I think the big thing that we have to embrace in our society and, and especially in politics is the adage of "I don't know." And like sure. when. So when people ask, like, you know, I'm not a Trump fan at all. I, I, I'm quite disgusted by him. I hope he's voted out. I, I would, I said that without the 22nd Amendment, I would have loved Barack Obama to have a third term. I believe that. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a conservative, and I believe that because I think we had normalcy and we had decency with him. And I think decency is really important in that position. But with him, with the Russian investigation, for instance, when people are like, what do you think about Donald Trump and Russian inclusion, and I'm like, I don't know. You don't know enough. You, you know, and it's like, Trump. and yeah, and it's like, which is a fair position, right? And I'm like, with Brett, with Brett Kavanaugh, I'm like, do you think people are like, do you think he did it? Do you? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, like, sure. why is that not a? Why do I have to stake a claim without having all the information that I need? You know, I think people see that as as maybe they think that you're being willfully ignorant. That's pro- I'm not saying you are. I think that's part of it. It's like, well, you should know that Trump has some heavy collusion going on. Which, well, yeah, there's a book coming out called. Uh, collusion uh, by uh, what, Seth, Seth Abramson, who, who's been on this stuff a year and a half ago. He was connecting all the dots in this stuff before anyone else was, and he's been just about right on all of it, going back to Potolopoulos being the, sort of the linchpin for right. this starting, and now you have all, you have, what is it, several either guilty pleas or... Yeah, many. And if this happened in the Obama administration, it'd be like the world would be falling apart. With Trump, it's like, well, you know, it's Trump. It's like, who cares? Well, we, chaos is normalized now. Yeah, yeah. But, but, and that's and that's and that's the the worst thing about this administration. It's not right. that. Well, yeah, he's done some good things, right? I would argue any Republican president would do the same sort of things that Trump would want to do, uh, for the most part, uh, like wanting to uh, break up NAFTA, uh, for for example. But the normalization, like you said, of chaos is 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 alarming. Yeah, it's it's horrifying, and and it, there's there's multiple problems with it too, Pat. Is because a I always wanted a president like Donald Trump, and I, what I mean by that is I always wanted a president, an outsider who'd never served anywhere, who could self-fund his campaign and can shake things up. And shake things up. And and the unfortunate thing, because I think that's good. We've had presidents, not that they've been independent or outside of politics, but we've had presidents that have shaken things up. And and it's been a positive thing. FDR, like him or or hate him, really shook things up. You know, and uh, Reagan really shook things up, I think, too. And what I'm focused on with with Trump is is I'm not so concerned about the policy. I, I was against the tax cuts. Uh, the whole immigration ban I thought was a bad idea, but some things that are happening are good. The market likes him and is responding positively to him. My problem is is that I really believe that at the at the top of the pyramid you have to have decency and you have to have normalcy. And without those kinds of things, I don't really think it matters what your message is because your message is poisoned and polluted yeah, by the person who's giving it. And that's why I had so much respect and liked Barack Obama and voted for Barack Obama. By yeah, the way, Bar- Bar- Barack uh, Obama yeah. is someone where I probably disagreed with a, with. Um, 
I like I'm on record. I, I the ACA was a bad idea from the get go, uh, and I told uh, my liberal friends this is going to be a failure. It's failing. Uh, it's a it's a patchwork. It's 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 like a it's like a it's like a hyper. It's it's a hyper capitalist system where okay, uh, the insurance companies are this weird middleman that we really don't need, but now we're going to make them make sure they make more money by by insuring all of us. So for me, the ACA was well. Um, you, you have a system that's bad for some, it's become worse for them. Yes, some people are going to benefit, but the people that, like me, single people that are employed, uh, employed for ourselves, we get screwed uh, on that. And people are going to backlash against it and not want to sign up and only sign up until we're forced to, which happened, what, three or four years right. into the ACA. So that to me was bad. But you know what? I saw where your heart was. You wanted to help people, even though probably on paper it was, to me, not a good idea. But at least I know the person there is noble and is trying to do the right thing, even if I disagree with the policy. Now there's no nobility left. Right. And, and that's not just bad for us. It's bad for the rest of the world looking and laughing at us and for our allies thinking, what the fuck is going on? And that's really when, when I hear people say about, well, Trump did, he's done some good things I agree with. The amount of harm being done to us internationally, I think, is going to take us at least a full administration to recover from. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, at I, least. I, I agree. And I think that, like, nobility is a great way of putting it. And what I said earlier was honor. Like, I think it says, I think I'm open mind. I think the open mindedness kind of shines through because. In my in my perspective, because I'm like, I would rather have the guy, Obama, for instance, that I fundamentally disagree with on 75% of his policies than the guy who I probably agree with on 75% of his policies because I do believe the messenger matters. It matters. It's supposed to, this person is supposed to uplift. This person is supposed to inspire. This person sure. is supposed to bring everyone together. And so I think we've, I think he is, and I think this has been overwrought and said many times, so it's not a unique thought to me, but he is certainly um, a symptom. He is not the cause of the problem, and no. he is the end result of the problem. And yeah. and so, I I am heartened by this growing swath of mid, of centrists and, mid, and independent voters and independent thinkers that that don't want to be in these tribes anymore. And I'm I, I'm super in, excited about the possibility. Listen, like a, a third party because of the electoral college can never win the presidency. It would be very it would be almost impossible. But to have someone like in 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt ran third party or to have someone like Ross Perot in 1992 to come in and get 15 or 20 percent of the vote and say, like, listen, like this shit's fucked up and mm-hmm. I'm not going to win, but I'm going to say what I'm going to be on the stage. and I'm going to say what I need to say. I think we're I think we're almost at that point. And I think it's going to be that kind of moment where people self-reflect and realize, well, these two choices, as I said during the election, Hillary Clinton sucks, you know, and and Donald Trump sucks and it's okay to say that and you deserve better choices than this. And for someone to come up and say like, you, it doesn't have to be like this. I think will be a powerful moment for, for Americans to realize like we don't have to continue to choose from these lifetime politicians that don't care about anyone and only care about themselves and these reductive kind of positions that they take. I think it's super destructive. And, and so I'm, I hope, I hope, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I'm confident that it's going to get better. I think 2020 is going to be a bloodbath. And you're going to see really interesting stuff happen there. But I think once we get through this... In, tr- in terms of, uh, of the presidency? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, there's going to be a primary on the Republican side for an incumbent, which is weird. And so that's going to be... Oh, I, think, I, think I think they're going to dump Trump before that. They're going to realize we're going to be dead if we don't dr- drop I him. hope so. I, 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 I originally predicted before this midterm, it was going to be a bloodbath for Republicans this midterm. Oh, for sure. But I predicted originally that the Republicans, would, if they want to keep the, the House, they want to have a, a majority in the Senate, they, they probably still will, but they're going to have to dump them. Because this stuff is just—it's just a head of steam now. It's just now when it's just when the party's going to say, you know what? 
we're never going to be a, a, a party with power again for the next 20 years unless we dump this guy. I think it's going to be spring or summer now. I think they're going to want a full year before the primaries really get going or full full nine months before we realize we got to dump this guy. we got to get someone that's more reasonable because those, those independents are coming back and they barely won the election. What was it 50,000 votes spread out between three states? Yeah. That's nothing. Yeah. And that's with that's with the Democrats were running a bad candidate that didn't that didn't campaign in those states. So that was you if you ran back that election a hundred times, Trump maybe wins five percent of the time. Yeah, I mean that's that's it. Yeah, that's I mean even you know I like Nate Silver and Five Thirty Eight. I listen to their podcast and they always make the point about how people say like, well, they were wrong and they predicted wrong. And Nate Silver always said like, no, we said Donald Trump had one in five chances of winning, and the the fifth yeah. chance happened. And yeah, I think that like Hillary Clinton would do things right differently if she can do them over again. But I, I hope so because I would love, well, I don't want to say I would love nothing more, but I would be happy to rejoin the Republican Party if, if it can reclaim its normalcy. But I want nothing to do with this iteration of the party because I think it's, it, they, the, my problem with conservatism today is that I feel like it's, it's not consistent, what I would call consistent conservatism. To me, the conservative position is gay ma- is pro-gay marriage. The conservative position is pro-choice. The conservative position is pro-marijuana legalization and pro-prostitution It's for individual rights. Right. No if, matter what they are, whether it's guns, whether it's sexuality, right. it shouldn't matter. Right. Individual rights. You're not going to take my guns. You're not going to. And you're also not going to tell me that I can't marry another man. Those are consistent viewpoints that go that go against the same grain, which is to say, like, stay out of my business. Stay well, it, out of my business. Well, it wasn't what happened, though, was that the evangelicals came to the Republic, Republican Party and basically corrupted it in terms of putting in religious views. Isn't that really what happened? Yes, well, it, it was... there in the, uh, in the It's a little reductive to say in the post-war period, because it really happened around Vietnam and after, but the... Um, the, what we call the unholy alliance that held the Republican Party together, the Rockefeller Republicans, like I was saying before, in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, so like George Pataki and those kinds of guys. And you have the evangelical Republicans and you have, you know, there were more Republicans in the state of California than in any other state. You have, and they're not necessarily evangelical. They're mostly rural Republicans, values Republicans. We live uh, in the most conservative part of California. Unless I do, San right, Diego. We right, have military here. Exactly. We, we, and, have, we have a Republican mayor. Right, ex- ex- exactly. And so for me, I... I feel like the unholy alliance is finally starting to fracture, and I think it needed to fracture because these guys were all about, like, we'll get some of what we want if we just all band together. And frankly, I was a part of that problem because I wasn't a values voter at all. Like, I was, I'd vote, I'd happily vote for pro-life candidates, even though I didn't believe that because I wanted a small, smaller government or better fiscal policy or whatever the case might be. And so I think the fractures are natural, but I think the fractures also happening on the left will allow the people to join together in a new permutation. You know, I want my people, my friends on the left who I agree with on a lot of issues to come and meet me in the middle so we can get down to the bottom of, you know, solving some of these common problems that we have and and find decency and normalcy again. And I I would really love that because I I consider myself a kind and good and decent person and I try to treat people with respect and I want that. I want that to be the norm. And isn't that what it should be? Yes. When you start treating people with common decency and just don't yell at the other side and be like, what I hate, what I hate the most and this is probably people that probably you might follow a couple on Twitter or may follow you. What I d- dislike the most about where we're at is picking out the extremes of one side and saying, oh, look how fucking silly these people are and spotlighting them to make fun of an entire other argument that might be only a corollary of what you're making fun of. And I've seen that happen with Ben Shapiro and I've seen that happen with other people where it's like, oh, let's make fun of the silliness of this to make a larger point when they should just ignore the silliness because most of the time, not all, but most of the time, the silliness they're seeing like the, to them, like the extreme leftist view is not a majority view. It's always going to be an extreme view. The same way, uh, the Klan will uh, hopefully will always be an extreme view on one side. So why amplify that? Why even 
bother? And, and unfortunately, the answer is you're sometimes kowtowing to the people that like you because that's what they're there for. They want to feel superior in their argument by making fun. Oh, look at that. Ha ha. SJW view. Right. But most people are not like on these extreme sides again. So I, that to me is what bothers me the most because that thrives in the social media environment. And people are making a living off of that now. Uh, Sean Hannity to me is one of the worst people in America because he's making millions of dollars doing this kowtowing to a base that will go to that message they know exactly what they're getting they're not it's not going to defer from what they already know they're not going to be challenged and they're going to go to bed thinking i'm superior to the other view because i'm told that every night and that to me is is horrible and i'm not saying there's a way to legislate against that but until we recognize that for what it is it's it's a cottage industry of divisiveness i think we're in trouble and i don't know a, a way around that I think it, it requires a mass of people to say, no, we're not going to do it anymore. And you can, and it's not going to be a literal thing either. It's going to be a ratings thing. It's going to be an attention thing, right? And like people kind of, their attention with Sean Hannity, for instance, waning as they go to someone more normal and so, more decent and more informative to get their information. But it requires a lot of self-reflection. And I've, I've self-reflected a lot. I was definitely more partisan when I was younger. I've become more liberal as I've gotten older. Um, and, you know, and and it's about reflecting on the it's about reflecting on and learning from and moving forward from mistakes you've made in the past. I was vehemently for the war in Iraq when it happened, you know, and that was a massive mistake. I was one of the dumbest positions I ever took. I think, Completely I think, moronic, you know, sure. decision. Now, can I can I make excuses? Yeah, my dad is an FDNY firefighter. We have connections to nine eleven, obviously, but Iraq had nothing to do with nine eleven. And and like you kind of like you know you kind of like rationalize it to yourself until you realize like wow I was just fucking wrong and and I was part of the problem and it's important for people to be able to, to do those kinds of things but you know Pat what, what's even funnier about that and what's more important about that is that it's important that we make a climate that makes that okay does that make any sense to you in other words we don't have a climate where people can self-reflect because they feel like they're going to be ridiculed and they're only going to be reminded of what they did wrong. So, so the so I'm sure a lot of people would love to say like I was wrong about gay marriage or I was wrong about or you know, I was I, wrong I, about voting for Trump and people are still hanging on. Right, exactly. And, and there's no there's no way society and the environment doesn't allow doesn't reach out a hand sure. and say like being wrong about voting for Trump is totally subjective. But like, there's no one. But that, I but but I know there's people that would want to say it if it wasn't for their pride. Right, I exactly. know that personally. Right. I know personally, people are hanging on to, well, I don't want to feel like I'm dumb and made a bad decision. I know those people. They're going to they're gonna admit it at some point. It right. might be years from now, but they're going to admit it. Right, exactly. And we need, so we need to foster a culture and a, and, a, and, a, and a wide American community and a global community that says it's okay to have disagreements and it's okay to kind of follow your heart or follow a, follow a thread down to its, its end conclusion and realize that it was the wrong way to go. Sure. I've done that, and I've done that in catastrophic ways. And, it's in, and I like wearing my heart on my sleeve. My dad always used to tell me that he always knew when I did something wrong because I would tell him. So when I feel like I did something wrong or I feel like I made a wrong decision, I, I like to reflect on it and talk about it and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And we just don't have that culture. So people double down. And it's you brought up the term SJW before. I hate these terms. and I've I always, hate them too. I, I've always hated them. I know what you're talking about when you say that. And I know that those people exist, you know, but it's... But again, we're talking about a sliver of people. The same way on the other side, I, I, you can call them social culture warriors. Right. The one that says Christmas is being taken away from right. us. Or they're taking all our rights away. The, the PC culture is taking over. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Like, let's relax a bit. There, there's, there's two sides of the same coin. Right, exactly. Well, the term that always bothered me the most because it could be – it was when I heard it for the first time – I was like, this is so dumb. I can't believe anyone would use this as the term snowflake. And the reason that I think that term is stupid because I'm like, 
you're also a snowflake. Politics is a closed loop, yeah. and you're exactly what you hate. It's like when you see Antifa in the far left and, and the far right are very similar in a lot of ways. Their, and, their and, personality traits are the same. They just have different... different. Uh, it's, it's just a different uh, philosophical edge. Right. Of, it's the same thing with politics. They're both totalitarian. They're, they're the same personality type. Yes. They're both totalitarians. Yeah. They're both violent, and they both have terrible ideas, right? And it's the horseshoe theory. It's and not, and, not, and it's, neither, pe- neither people I ever want to have a beer with or a taco. Right, exactly. And lopping off those ends... Like I, you brought up an interesting point before, and I think it's, it's interesting, too. Like I've said in the past, like the only reason that I even know about these disparate elements and the only reason I know about these extremes like Richard Spencer for instance because people spotlight I, them yeah I had I, 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 I circulated in conservative circles and Republican circles and I'm very engaged in politics for a long time and I had never heard of that dude until you know people told me that he existed and so we also I think I, you know the idea of removing the ability for people to um, I don't believe that people should be silenced right I really have a problem with that I think people should be allowed um, to say what they need to say and want to say what we need to do is to be able is to have the fortitude to hear it and move on and ignore it and well, not highlight it because then it, it 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 grabs them adherence and it grabs them interest and you know it goes back to what's happening with Alex Jones on Twitter and, and this whole conflict of like freedom of speech and stuff like that and I'm like it's not a freedom of speech issue they're they're a private company they can do what they want what we need to come down on the side of as Americans is to say like this this makes us uncomfortable to silence people as a culture well right? it, well well Alex it, it, it's I think I think people. When it comes to social media and Alex Jones, and I, I and I agree with you, and I said that, that I didn't I didn't care that Alex Jones was torn off Facebook and Twitter. If they broke the terms of service, if they feel that they have the right to do that, and I don't think Alex Jones was totally protected by free speech with some of the things he was saying for for his defamation, for his slander, sure. things and things it's like also that. not a free speech for, issue. It's not for the thre- government. He threatened Bob Mueller. Right. I mean, it's like ah, you can't do that. Right, right. Uh, you can't do that, Alex. You can talk about gay frogs. You can't you can't threaten people that are independent counsel. Uh, investigating the president. You can't do that. You can't rile people up and say there's going to be a civil war like he did the past time. It's like, no, that's not free speech anymore. You're, 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 you're inciting violence. That's, that's where the, the line is crossed, uh, at least to me. And I think that's most reason people would probably agree with that. Um, yeah, violent speech is not, is not necessarily protected. It's not. I can't go and threaten my neighbor and say I'm going right, to exactly. kill you. You exactly. can't. You get no, arrested. Exactly. And, uh, and but it's also but but I want to double down and say it's not a. That was the thing that bothered me is I'm like it's not a free speech issue. It's not the government. If yeah. the government ran Twitter, then that would be a different story. Yeah. But but I think w- when when people though are uh, when you, people that want to latch on to any sort of any sort of a fringe element or someone, Alex Jones is, is basically a guy given a platform who he be he be in a park with a megaphone and, and signs. That's that's that personality, and he's making his own cottage industry off that, making who knows how much money. But I, I think if people are afraid of that. We talk about the deplatforming. When people are giving a platform, they attract sometimes this element that's bad, and they congeal. The internet, the internet has allowed uh, what used to be just people getting conspiracy newsletters in the '90s, or hey, they were they were posting up on some some weird bulletin board somewhere. Now they all find each other, and and it's it's probably a false sense of uh, a movement being larger than what it is. But I think that's what people are, are fearful of when it comes to people like Alex Jones. And Alex Jones, he has the right to say whatever he wants on his own website, put up his own videos. Yeah, that's fine. But I think it's it's where do the fringe elements now that seem like they have more power and where do they go? And I think that's what people were being mindful of. I think that's why Facebook and Twitter acted the, the way they did in Apple. They're like, first of all, they don't want to get sued by the same people that are suing Alex Jones as well. So it was partially business. But I think that's what the mindset was. I didn't see Alex Jones as being a political thing at all. I just said like, this guy is, is, is just extreme and we got to do away with them. And you can argue in the merits of that being censorship because you know, if you don't have a platform, is that free speech or not? I, I can lean one way or the other depending upon my mood. I think we are in agreement 
I think that what I would throw in there, though, is, and I think this is a nuanced kind of opinion that I think needs to be said more and kind of thought about more and marinated on more by by American society, which is, you can be okay with Alex Jones being removed from Twitter or Facebook, right? That's a, that's an those are isolated incidents by made by private companies that can make decisions. They can ban me because they don't like the, the cut of my jib. You know, it's like it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. You're you're an Italian from Long Island. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they yeah, and they're like, all right, bye. I mean, like that's that is ultimately their right. But what I would like to see is fundamentally at, at the core at the cornerstone of our souls as Americans and in our polity is to say like we are fundamentally uncomfortable with people being silenced even by companies that you know are becoming public squares and that it's actually a little more complicated than saying only and reducing it only to a private company making a decision when these are the way these are the parts of of society that we that our discourse happens in now it almost is the town square right so i think what i'm saying is that they're not right or wrong and i don't disagree with the decision but we have to have a fun we have to have discussions with ourselves maybe in internal monologues about our comfort level because it they because as the walls narrow in you know, and we start reducing the, the disparate elements and narrow in, then what becomes normal and what we think is normal will be the next fringe cutoff and so on and so forth. So my whole argument is I'd rather I'd rather unfettered free speech and just everyone have a megaphone than have anyone decide that people certain people shouldn't have a megaphone. And that is a philosophical argument. That's not an argument about what Twitter or Facebook did. Well, in terms of public square, I'm just getting the facts here. This is a quick, it uh, looks like 67% of American adults uh, use Twitter. Now, you define use. I don't know what that means. Does that mean I log on once a week? Does that mean I'm looking at it every day? Does that mean I'm constantly doing it? So there is a large percentage of people, though, that are on social media. It's, right. It's not everyone, but there's a percentage. Right. Sure. And, and note that on the other side of the coin is the fact that politicians and people in public office are being sued for blocking constituents on Twitter. So this argument is actually happening from both angles. The argument being that like these are public squares and they kind of need to be treated a little bit differently. I don't know how I feel about that. I've not marinated on that enough, but it is a discussion worth having. It's definitely it's a discussion worth yeah. having, but I, there's still terms of service. The same thing with Fisher's. Like if Alice Jones goes on Twitter and posts a video saying there's going to be a civil war, mm-hmm. the liberals and the far left are going are to be out in the streets. It's like, hey, dude, all right, that's not really free speech anymore because people are going to get crazy or go in, into a fucking pizzeria and shoot it up like what happened with Cernovich, uh, Cernovich right. pushing the Pizzagate shit. Like at some point, it's not free space more and people are going to get killed. Right. And I, know? yeah, I always, I just, this is, what we're doing right now is exactly what needs to happen. Having more. a conversation about yeah, it. Yeah. And like, there's no, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what the conclusion is. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I like having the discussion and I like acknowledging that the discussion should happen. Maybe it's an opt in. Maybe it's a thing like you have to specifically opt in. Because to me, Twitter and Facebook, the reason why it's not a public square to me is because, uh, Due to uh, likes and retweets, you can see something in your timeline or a hashtag that you wouldn't see, that you wouldn't want to see. Like when the when the election of 2016 that happened, um, I definitely saw accounts and tweets that were Russian that were confirmed later, and they were coming up a lot. Like the TN underscore GOP account was confirmed to be these were Russians behind this, and what they did was you know they buy bots to promote theirs. The more likes and retweets you have, the more it. it it comes up in the, yeah, in the, the algorithm. Yeah. I saw that happen in my own eyes. I was like, why am I seeing this shit on my timeline that I, my mind knows it's false when I see this stuff, promoting this stuff. 
Um, and then it's confirmed, oh, yeah, that what, there were Russians that did that. So to me, then it's not a public square anymore because, because you can use nefarious means to amplify your voice and people don't realize that. And, and I think that's, again, it's a conversation that has to be had. Mm-hmm. How do we get around that? How do we really combat the bad use of social media? And, and we saw those, uh, those promoted posts around the election. I saw them. I saw them from both sides. Like, oh, uh, Black Lives Matter is, is, is bullshit. Black Lives Matter is good. And we're getting fucked with. That's not free speech anymore because now people are coming to me, getting their message and throwing it in my face. That might, I may not have wanted to hear that. And they're just using money and some nefarious means to do that. To me, that's not the same as a public square. But again, these are conversations we have to have. We have to hash this shit out. Yeah, absolutely. And we, I think we, I, we, we really have to because yeah. the Russians on a discount fucked with us. It was on a discount. It was like anyone could do any post on Facebook. And Facebook didn't care. They were just taking the cash. Anyone could say, I want to put $10,000 to promote this post. And we can make up a fake-looking CNN headline to promote whatever we want. And that's what they did. And then it gets shared around. All of a sudden, it goes viral. And it's a false story created by another power out to fuck with us. Right. And and I think part of the discussion has to occur, too, right or wrong, that America turned a blind eye to doing this to other countries for 100 years. We There are... The CIA and the and and the CIA's legacy, especially in South and Central America, oh, sure. and Eastern Europe, we fucked with Russia plenty, and and absolutely, like, and we were totally cool with it until it was done to us. And I think that that's another thing that we have to. I'm a total pacifist, and not, I I believe like after the Iraq War and kind of finding myself in like the whole you know the whole neoconservative movement that I got caught up in for a little while with like kind of, um you know. You're uh, a neocon, really? Well, policy for a new American century, and the, like the fact that like America has certain. Um, you know, like certain, I guess, foreign, uh, there are certain foreign dictates that we have to kind of like attend to. We have problems in the Middle East, we're going to be there. We have problems in, in Southeast Asia, we're going to be there. And I, I believed that for a little while. And, you know, when I was younger, when I was in college, when I was, when I was, I was stupider and I was learning and I've come around, you know, and become very pacifist and very nonviolent. And like that violence is really the end result. Like, I don't want that unless it's the exact, you know, the end result of what needs to happen. And we seem to like in our society, forget that, like, you know, this Russian interference, however broad or narrow it was, and it seems like it was quite broad, um, we did, we've done this to many countries. Sure, it doesn't and, mean it makes and, what they did right, though. No, I, I understand that. But, like, we won't have that other end of the conversation. We're acting like this is, like, this new thing that, like, we almost fostered this well, thing. Well, it's new yeah. in terms of the technology and how simple it was to do. This wasn't us going in w- with uh, commandos and with the CIA and overthrowing a government and installing a puppet. It wasn't that overt. Right. And because that could never happen in the Yeah, United and States. you'd argue that but, what we did is way worse, actually, than what happened to us. And like, sure. And, that's, and that's, that, that's the only argument I'm making is, like, let's, so, be, let's be self-reflective a little bit. We can, understand. but the people around now, we weren't the ones making the decisions. We weren't around for what happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s. And if we try that shit now, we wouldn't get away with it. Like, it, There's too many eyes and too many things going on where it's a lot harder to get away with that shit now. That has to happen behind the scenes with a lot of money and things and influence. It's not exactly we can go march into somewhere and kill a bunch of people and, and put right. something to power. Right, but but it's it goes back, you know... Well, there's a big war like Iraq. But there's this, this um, you know, Ron Paul, who I really loved, used to say, he used to have a hard conversation. It's a hard thing to acknowledge and accept, the, the idea of blowback, Right. And this idea that even nine eleven is a, is a is a is a is blowback in some way for our foreign policy and the things we've done in the past. 
And when you listen to those things about, you know, uh, regime change and the CIA doing all these kinds of things, what Russia is doing to us, we need to wipe the slate clean and be like, just all of it's unacceptable. Let's start forward again with a, with peace and prosperity and egalitarianism as the center of everything we do. And if we can get to that point, commerce with all, peace with all, egalitarianism with all, and like that's it. That's so, like our that's so, our, our modus operandi. So in the Colin Moriarty presidency, day one, you say, you know what, all all of foreign antagonism, we're going to wipe that clean. We're going to start a ground, you know, a ground floor, and we'll see where we're at until you do something bad, and then we come down on you. Yeah, I, my, yeah I, it's funny you say that because my argument has always been like close all foreign military bases and bring America home, and we will have the mightiest fighting force the world has ever seen, just like we do right now, with the most sophisticated technology and the sophisticated weapons, and if you fuck around, we'll insert ourselves into your country and take care of it. And until that time happens, we don't have to have any beef with you, and we don't have to have a foreign base. Like, Poland, the president or prime minister of Poland is literally asking us to open a military base there. That's a provocative act in East, in East uh, Europe to do something like that. And to me, I'm like, we're... Well, there, are, they, are they really afraid of Russia coming in? Uh, well, I think those guys are so pro-Trump, and so you know what's happening in the in the former satellite states is really quite remarkable because there's a there's a new nationalism kind of forming there, um, and yeah, it's it's a provocative act with the old Warsaw Pact and and with you know NATO obviously, but my point being that like people people um, especially Republicans and right wing people in the United States they mistake passivity and they mistake peace for weakness. And it's dumb to do that because we can still be powerful and still take care of ourselves without flaunting our big $600 billion dick around the world at all times. It doesn't make any sense. And I think it provokes people. And so my whole thing is like, you think if there's a problem, say, in the South China Sea with China, right, which would be a cataclysmic flashpoint that could cause a world war. Sure. But assume something like that happened. And, and everyone says like, well, the fact that we have a base in Japan and a base in South Korea allows us to quickly respond. I'm like, are you are you telling me that if there was a problem in there that we couldn't insert ourselves there at, at, a, at a moment's notice? Because I don't believe that we can send we can send all of the navy ships from San Diego and, and Hawaii, and they'd be there in a few days, and it wouldn't really be. But that is big it a more a preventative measure versus response? It, I, well, that's that's that, that's the, the philosophy, that's right? The, well, the that's, philosophy is that we we have a standing army between South and North Korea, so North Korea doesn't just jump on it. Like that's the philosophy behind it. No, of course it is, and and North Korea invaded South Korea in 1950, so we 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 know that that's the reason it happened, but. But my, my point is, it's not our problem. It's not our problem. You know, like, and I feel like America does much more good when it focuses on its economic might and when it focuses on its principles of egalitarianism that influence so many people. Our egalitarian, so you, okay. we, we influenced Haiti. We influenced, the French Revolution would have never happened without Thomas Jefferson and, and the minds that, that fostered our own revolution. And, you know, even, even Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese basically mimic in the Viet Cong basically mimicked the Declaration of Independence and their own Declaration of Independence from the French. Our power is in our in our civility. Our power is in our structure. Our power can be in our military, but we've shown in the past that our military can ramp up and do whatever it wants if it has to. But we have this posture around the world where we're going to do something or we're we're on the ninth step of the ten steps of, of, of actually fighting and I think it's destructive. So you think us. if we pulled back uh, I believe in an people like America. people like Russia would be like, all right, we're not gonna get jumpy and invade Georgia or the Ukraine. Let them. We're, we're gonna if be that's okay. what they're going to oh, do. let them. If, if that's what, dude, if that's what they're going to do, then then our Article 5 of NATO kicks in and they're going to get invaded by 26 countries. You know, like it's well, it, like, why, like, you know, did that, anything happen after they took over half of the Ukraine? No, but the reason that, that they did that is they call, first of all, the Ukraine's not a, a NATO country, but beyond that, the they called Western Europeans bluff. They did it in the fall 
all of heating oil and oil supply in Europe comes from Russia, and they would have just cut, cut the pipeline off. Like, they, they, they just outsmarted everyone. And what Russia did in Crimea is a 19th century colonial technique that I couldn't even believe. It's like what the Nazis did in, in the 1930s and 1940s, just like the Sudetenland. You know, like, we're just going to sure. go in or take Czechoslovakia. And everyone's going to be lost. It was, it was yeah. unbelievable. And I don't think we should be doing a Chamberlain-like move of just appeasing uh, Putin and appeasing the Russians. But my point being is that, like, we we I think we're under this guise that, like, American military might is 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 literally stopping things from happening and i think it's figuratively stopping things from happening and i think that that figurative can still happen if we are within our borders and respect the sovereignty of other countries and insert ourselves if and when we're needed and have alliances like nato that we're the bulwark of that if something happens in europe it's on and by the way the only time article 5 of nato was ever instituted was when we were attacked sure you know so it's it's um so, so, so really the gambit is that we're going to hope it's not going to spill over and become big enough that it'll be another world war. Right. And well, my, my That's other a big argument, gambit to make, though, isn't it? Sure. But think about it this way, Pat. If the Russians amassed, um, amassed a million troops, tanks, and everything on, the, on their western border and moved in, right? That's going and, to – and they did that with us there or us without us there, they would still do it. Like it's still going to happen. You know, like, I don't think us just literally being there with 20,000 anecdotal troops is going to stop the Russians from overrunning Eastern Europe, by the way. Like, that's not going to happen. If they wanted to take it, they're going to. Sure. And then we're going to fight. My whole thing is that we have to back up and realize that we have more to gain with peace and, you know, one thing Trump says about Russia, which I think is true, apart from the whole hacking thing, which I think, you know, with financial ramifications and we need to deal with this and deal with it the right way. Oh, sure. Yeah. But but he does say one thing, Pat, that I think is important. Like, we should want to be pe- at peace with them absolutely but they're yeah. not but they're not playing fair so you can only have a peaceful alliance with someone if you're both being honest and not being underhanded right and that's where i think your point is is taken about yeah we should be peaceful and have that shower onto the world but it's naive to think that it'll be matched by every nation that they're going to be they're re- oh the americans being are playing nice we're going to play nice there's always going to be nefarious actors there's always going to be pakistan ready to go to war with india and we're like this weird a buffer throwing money at pakistan so they don't invade or throw nukes at each other that's us being all peaceful is not going to get rid of some of these problems right they're always going to exist but my argument my argument persists like i don't know that pakistan and india's beef with each other is something that we need to be involved in at all. And I still think that mutually assured destruction keeps the peace. And that that's why no one well, has launched any... Let's no hope. one has launched a yeah. nuclear bomb since more than one country has had one. Not sure. one time. Well, you hope that yeah. it wouldn't get into a big issue that where if we pulled that again this is all like this is all yeah. playing civilization on the computer one of my favorite games right. you'd hope that us pulling back all the troops would not be it wouldn't be like oh next day everyone starts invading each other but getting a little more jumpy countries would be like alright well the Americans they'll perceive potential weakness and then start getting jumpy then we gotta deal with them and then we have more blood shed than if we were there already that's the two sides I think the arguments that it's hard to say you don't know what's gonna happen it's all theoretical's yeah, right? I know it is all. But hey, that's the fun of. Uh, that's why we're not in the State Department right now. No, and it's. I mean, dude, I would love nothing more than to be at the State Department, and like, I'm fascinated by. Which, by the way, we can't fill the fucking positions right now with with our with our president. Yeah, of course, the contingency <laughs> plans that the military and the State Department have are probably wild. Like, I can't. You know, the, China every once in a while has leaked their own contingency plans, and in, 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 if they ever went to war with the United States, yeah. and people can look them up. They're really fascinating. They don't have a first strike policy. They would launch EMPs over the United States uh, to you know to r- render our. Uh, electric our electric uh, infrastructure yeah. um, u- useless and stuff like that's fascinating stuff but my whole thing is that I just think if we have a posture of peace and prosperity and civility and egalitarianism for all and we deal with countries on an individual basis if they don't want to reciprocate we don't have to deal with them 
I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the open secret of the world. Uh, many countries, in terms of trade, need us way more than we need them. Oh, and, absolutely, and, 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 like, and really, and, and, you know, know, and really, that's why we'll never have a third world war because we're right. so economically intertwined with right. China and other countries that it would be. It, uh, mutual destruction on the scale of economically. We would never be able to recover if China went or if the U.S. went. Right. Everything would be shut down. We are too right. connected. When but, you have McDonald's in every country and other, other businesses, you can't just pull back from that so easily when, when the money's filtering it all over the place that you can't even track it anymore. It's just funny to me, Pat, because like, you're right. It's so funny to me that like, America has influenced positively the world in so many ways and we, can't, and we just can't accept it, like, that that's enough. Like The American military invented the internet. You're using an Apple, you know, iPhone. Uh, you're using Google. Mm-hmm. You're using, you know, uh, Cisco systems, and you're on Amazon, and you're playing an Xbox, and you're do- like, and we can't just accept that our might is our and our influence is our it's entertainment and our technology, cultural, technical, and, yeah. and like it's that is that is incredible might, dude. Like you can't avoid what we do. We can, you and I in the United States can avoid uh, the the massive exports of the country of Belgium, for instance. No offense to Belgium, right? I want those but, chocolates. But the, but, the, but the point I'm trying to make is like we have already indelibly affected in such a positive way the, the world with our technology and, our, and, and all these kinds of things that we should double and triple and quadruple down on that and say like we can make lots of money and we can foster positivity and prosperity and we don't need to have it do it at the barrel of a gun. And by the way... If you fuck around, you have never seen a fighting force like we have, you know? Sure. But we're never going to show it to you, and our hope is that we will never deploy it. And I think that that's like... Going back to Teddy. Exactly. softly carry a big stick. Exactly right. Look at me keeping up with Collins' political acumen by knowing a few quotes. Well, I mean, isn't that one of the most powerful statements ever? I think that's such a powerful statement. Everyone knows we got a big dick. You don't need to show them. Like, you don't need to show them. They'll find out... If Little the, it, fact, that's what Teddy originally said. Yeah. They had a censor in them. You know, like, the, like, <laughs> like, you know, so if the Russians want to roll into NATO countries, they're going to find out how big the American's dick, dick is. But they don't, we don't need to, like... We don't need to show it. Right. Well, actually, I think it's way more, I think it's way more interesting. Um, you know, one of the advantages that we had, one of the understated advantages, not in the Pacific theater, but in the European theater during World War II that we had, was that we were so isolated and insulated from the rest of the world that a lot of, you know, Nazi tacticians and stuff didn't really understand what we even had. And... They had some better gear than us, for sure. Well, we had to ramp up the war machine once we were heavily right. involved. Exactly. GM was making tanks, and that's why if you can find a car from 41 to 45, American car, they're very valuable because they barely exist. And it was, it, like, there's almost a tactical advantage to being like, what are they doing over there? Like, you know, like, almost like a, you know, like an interesting, like, we don't know what they're capable of. We don't know what their troop strengths are. We have no sure. idea, like... But it, if we were stationed in... in, in... In Poland, would the Nazis have invaded? That's always the counterpoint. Like, would they have been as as, as froggy at yeah, that point? Sure, but that, to be fair, in thirty eight, thirty nine, that's a British and French problem. We didn't. I'm get just it. telling. I'm just telling. I'm just talking about a theoretical world where yeah, yeah. we had a strong alliance. We weren't an isolationist at that point. Would that war have happened to that scale? Maybe it still would have. I don't know. But that's that's sort of again. That's the sort of theoretical discussion that's had. That it's hard to answer. Right. Unless you go in a time machine and make it happen somehow. And it brings it. It brings into, into my. You know, I've I've really struggled with this idea. I like I like playing around with challenging ideas. I've been playing around with challenging ideas like UBI lately, and, and some other ideas that are fundamentally principled. What's UBI? A, uh, universal basic income. Oh, that's right. I've had yep. conversations with my and, leftist friends about that. And uh, it's an, an interesting idea. And one of the one of the um you know the ideas that you know I've been kind of playing around with. Um, is is this simple idea of of service of compulsory service in the United States, uh, and and it's not a, it's not a um, it's not a, a new idea, it's an old idea, but the idea that um, 
when you're 18, you give two years of your life to the United States and you go. Does it be military? Public no, work? It could be, yeah, go, okay. go plant trees, go pave roads, go learn a trade. Go. And what I like about an isolated America where we kind of keep everything internal is that when you join the military under that, if that's what you want, how you want to serve, like they do in Israel, for instance, with the Israeli Defense Force, they're in danger at all times. That's why they do it. Sure, we it. over here, we, our, our sons and daughters are always in danger of going to these capricious wars that mean nothing in the Middle East. And what I would like is for is for a parent to say, like, my son or daughter, if we have this compulsory service to give back to the community like JFK wanted us to do, what can you do for your country? Is to say, like, my son is going to go and learn a, learn a, a trade or learn how to use computers or or be a marksman or whatever the case might be, but he's not going to be sent to some fucking war to die for no reason. And it would, I think it would be, um, it would uplift all of us to serve in some way. And well, we could, we could redo our infrastructure finally. Right, exactly. Because we're so far behind. Have we'll, a new works program. And, and yeah. you know, and those are very far left ideas that I, I kind of embrace because I think that what it happens is it brings, it brings not only civility, but civil identity. And, and, and it, it gives us all something to share. Well, it like, gives us a commonality. Right. And that's where the military is sort of, the military in sports really breaks down all barriers, right? Because you're, you're with someone whether you like it or not, and you have to survive with them and work with them. And you have to rely and, on and, them. And, yes, yeah. Your life depends on it, or your team depends upon working with someone. Right, exactly. That's why the significance of Jackie Robinson can't be understated. That was a huge moment uh, for that breaking down those barriers. Like, oh, this guy's working for us. He's on our team. We're with him. You know, who cares if the guy's a different skin color? Right. What the hell does that matter right. in things? Uh, but in terms of, yes, being on the same page, like you said, civilly or with, with our ideals, that wouldn't be terrible. I think people would just be afraid of, oh, that means you're going to be compulsory military service. You know, I think that's probably people would be scared of. But it's also be oh we were spending a ton of money anyway with the military. You might right. as well uh, put that more domestic good works if you could do it. Yeah, sure. and, 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 I, and that's where I'm probably I, I'm agreeing with you about. Right, right, right. I'm, I'm probably not left wing, but I yeah let's let's cut funding the military if we can. Why oh, I, I would slash military funding in half, like like right away because it's all black box anyway. Uh, going back to the NES games, comes full circle. It's all, it's all a black box. of We don't know where that money's going. It's all going to these private contractors, Boeing, whoever else. And they're they're making tons of money. Their stockholders are happy. And who knows if we even need to use that, was it, the X, X-22 or whatever. It's a trillion dollars into it. And it's, oh, we don't even need that piece of shit. We're fine with our drones and our and our F-16s and our Falcons and everything else. And right, why, right. why do we need to have th- this stuff? Yes, we're, we're, and we're already still ahead militarily than the rest of the world. Oh, my God. No one, no, by like, a margin. And, and anyone, any military expert will tell you that, like, no one can take the United States, like, like on, on a pound-for-pound pound basis. Now, that might change. But, oh, it can but, always change, but, uh, but not for a while. Yeah, I had you know, I, I know a bunch of people that serve, and a Marine friend of mine who's a, um, who was a, a helicopter gunner was telling me that he came across a bag of screws. He was doing some repairs, and, the, and there was like an invoice attached to the screws, and it was like $80 for the screws. Right? Sure, it's, and, it, it, there's so much blowage. It's right. just like the medical industry. It's right, exactly. But, my, but I love the idea, back to the civil service idea, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm not sure if I'd really want it. There's something, there's something unsavory about forcing someone to do anything. That they but, don't want to do. Right, exactly. But I love the idea of like, you, you know, you meet someone in a bar in four... 40 years you're in your you know like say you're a 20 year old or an 18 year old and in your 60s and you and you meet another guy you've never met before and you have and all of you have a shared experience you all served in some way and you have this like common bond everyone has it you know like even if you're in a wheelchair or even if you're disabled in some way you served in some capacity you know behind a computer or teaching someone or learning something it i think that you know it, it, this is a full circle for our conversation as i assume we're wrapping up soon where we Maybe that's what we need to, to find ourselves again and find that bond is to actually literally have that bond, you know, and, and it's something worth. Will that bring exploring. us together where we, that's our, we find our common ground as a society? If we all, you know, we all have the same ideals to help each other out domestically, 
We helped, uh, you know, build new roads, rebuild houses. You know, we had a devastating hurricane happen, mm -hmm. something of that nature. There could be something to be said for that. We do, we do have a lot of organizations like AmeriCares and uh, Red Cross that do good mm -hmm. work. But you're saying maybe we broaden that. We have like a nat more nationalized program. Yeah, and per like something that. in perpetuity, like something that is is nimble and can move and can do, you know, like where there is no problem that is insurmountable because you have a group of young people that are eager and willing to give, you know, they're not doing it for free. They're getting paid. They're getting some money put into the bank for them maybe maybe it's a way for them to pay for college maybe it's a way for them to start buy a house in the future or something like that and there's and, some benefits versus like, a common citizen right, maybe it's, it's not compulsory it's in your best interest maybe you'll get a low interest loan on a mortgage right. eventually the same way you had the gi bill right exactly yeah. exactly with free education some sort of reciprocity and i you know i'm compelled by that because i think that in a society that's so fractured and there's so many opinions and there's so much vocal violence and even violence in the streets sometimes and we need a way to put a hand out to someone else and i again i don't know if it's the right answer but it's something just like ubi and these other challenging things that i've been dealing with lately where i'm like i want to hear what the solutions yeah, are let's, and I wanna, let's start having the conversation because we're not having conversations yeah i want to keep we, an open mind we can't we can't even have a conversation about you know gun violence we're, we're unwilling to have that conversation when kids are getting killed in high school it's right like, we at least have the conversation we may not have to get to some place but, but just to shut down the conversation at all doesn't seem healthy Especially healthy because people are literally losing their health and their lives doing that. And I think people came on me and like said, let's try something. Let's try, let's try to go to some common ground when it comes to these big issues. And no one's even willing to have those conversations. Right. And it's a shame. Uh, so are you, are you ready to admit that you were wrong on the Switch? And I was right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I, I mean, I bought a Switch day one. I have one. And I haven't played it since Odyssey came out. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a compelling machine. I think that it's... It's a I runaway, think, runaway smash. I mean... It's it is. I think that they're. T I I will be surprised if they hit their their twenty million additional units in uh, in fiscal March to March. What are they right now? Twenties early low twenties. Yeah. Well, but but people. But they predicted another twenty from March. So it's not like additive. They're predicting twenty million net they're, units they're, from March first to March first. They'll get the forty million by March of, of this year. Right. And I think I I think that that's ridiculous that but might we'll be see, a striking distance. I just don't know. You know, they blew their load, and I don't know that there are certain games that are going to be very compelling. A mainline Pokemon game is going to be very compelling. Smash Brothers, people make it seem like it's a system seller. It's, 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 it's not. I mean, I, I, just like when people are like Metroid, I, I'm like, Metroid is, I think Metroid has totally sold like 9 million units, like all of them, you know? And so I just, I, and it's a port machine and it's also going to be exposed as being incredibly underpowered when the new, you know, the new PlayStation, you know, I know people that are making games on these, on, on, you know, new games and they, these games are not going to be any joke. And like, and, and these systems are not going to be a joke. And I think porting games down to Switch is going to be a problem. So I think Switch is going to be a bit isolated once the new consoles are announced and come out, which will probably well, be you 2020. Can, they can always do a Super Switch. They, I mean, they always could do that. I mean, because the technology is getting cheaper and cheaper. The chips get smaller and more powerful. I mean, the fact that the Switch it, it exists in its form and, and can do some of these games even at locked in whatever. So 720p at 30 frames. Who cares? It's in the palm of my right, hand. Right, right. But playing Wolfenstein. On, on this little system. We couldn't imagine that 10 years ago happening. I think I predicted 35 to 45 million for the Switch. That actually might be low when all said and done. Oh, in totality. Yeah, yes. that's going to be low, I think, yeah. So it, to me, that's a runaway success because the last Nintendo consoles haven't come closer. I think people people underestimated the handheld aspect somehow. I think even Sony did and, and Microsoft. They said, well, this is an underpowered system that you can also use as a handheld. I was like, no, this is a handheld system. I can also go to a TV. The slight sort of reversal mm. in terms of, of marketing that Nintendo had to go through the failure of the Wii U to discover. that They were half right. Palm of your hand, but the system's in the palm of your hand, not hooked up to the TV. Right. So Nintendo had to have failed with the Wii U. And I think people discounted the fact that to a lot of people in the casual market, this was the first new Nintendo console since the Wii. 
Nintendo's marketing was so freaking poor with the Wii U, not just in the name, getting the word out in the commercials, that to a lot of people, it's like, oh my god, there's a new Nintendo system out. They skipped the Wii U, some people. So for them, they don't care that this is a port machine of Wii U games, because you know why? They didn't buy those games. The fact that Mario Kart did only, what, like 10 million on the Wii U is insane, when on the Wii it did like 35 or 40? Right. It's in, it, although although a 10 million on a unit that sold 16 million is a remarkable It's remarkable, rate. but for, right. for, a, for a traditional yeah. Mario Kart game, that's yeah, really poor. No, absolutely. Yeah, so I, 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 you know, people think I'm a Nintendo hater, and I'm not. I, You're I'm a hater, a, Colin. NES, like I said, is my favorite console of all time. It always will be. And, you know, I want them to do well, and I think a healthy Nintendo is great for the industry and, and quite compelling. And I think that the Switch's success certainly is going to compel Sony to re-examine their exit from the handheld market. And you think I, they can I, come back in? I, I always said, before Switch even came out and it was even announced, I always said that they would be crazy enough to do it again regardless. And... Um, they're always prototyping and R&Ding things over there, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were doing something with it. But I think that power is going to be a problem because I, the Vita speaks really well um, in terms of mirroring PS4 games, and it actually works really well. But I think there's going to be – the next consoles are going to be so much more powerful, and getting a handheld that is going to match that power in any way – you know, like Vita is less powerful than PS3. So um, – it's gonna be it's gonna be a difficult proposition, and I think Sony just needs to stake its claim in the console space, which it's dominating. And you know, it's funny, it's it's fun to see Nintendo do well and stuff like that. But people are losing, you know, and I, maybe this is my PlayStation fandom coming out. Like PS4 is gonna pass 100 million units sold, and that's impressive. What does Xbox like, One have? Uh, no one knows. Microsoft has not spoken about numbers since 2014. Less than half, you think, or 50 or 60? Oh no, no, I, I would think it's probably in the 30s. So that's that's a failure then. Yeah, I think it's it's all relative. I'm sure they're happy with that. But the big thing is is that. This will mean that three out of four PlayStation consoles sold over 100 million units. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a big deal, and and Nintendo only has one. If you're not counting handhelds, which I'm not, so it's well. When Nintendo started the video game console market was a lot smaller, right? The, if the NES came out today, it would sell you know over 100 million. Back then, it sold. Uh, Jesus, I should know this, but I think it's I think 60. Uh, yeah, I think it's 60, and then SNES was down to 50. I think so. Those were like still gigantic. Their market share was 90. percent So right. I don't care how many units they sold. They had, it's market share 90 percent will never be repeated ever, 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 yeah, ever ab- again. Absolutely, you know. So it's it's a little bit of a of like a little column A, a little column B, where I'm like, I, I want Nintendo to do well. I root for them. I think that their first party games are immaculate, not necessarily from a standpoint of I want to play them, but from a standpoint of playability. Like when yeah. I played Zelda, I was so surprised. Like it was so it was so novel where it was downloading an update. You know, and I'm like, what? Like, I'm like, because like, it reminds me of like Metroid Other M, where it broke and you had to like send in your memory card for them to fix it because there was no. Is mod- that right? Yeah, <laughs> there was no, there was no module for you to even be able to fix it on Wii. So I really do. What I respect that about Nintendo the mo- most is that it's ready when it's ready, and they're and they're all about quality in the game's work. And I think that all, uh, in, Microsoft and Sony can learn a great deal from that well, because of the the condition that their games are released in. What's amazing about the about the Switch though is that they still have they still have bolts in the chamber because yeah they put out Mario cart 8 deluxe but who says there won't be a 9 that comes out on the switch mm-hmm. because that deluxe game it's not like they took a ton of time to do that they already had the game done you know they just added some bells and whistles and gave you the dlc so they're they're working on sequels to all these games behind the scenes i'm sure uh, when it comes down to this stuff the, the breath of the wild was done years ago mm-hmm. and they held it back for the switch to make sure that the switch was a success because they, they they couldn't risk it right so there's another zelda game that'll probably come out on the yeah, switch yeah probably a majora's mask type you know yeah it, it, like riff and i think that that would be cool and i just even i mean and the third party support is enough to carry because because this third party support is all already surpassed the wii u it's already been been more successful but it is fair to say that it's all ports like okay like i played skyrim on my ps3 in 2011 it's not it's, sure. like, i'm not that, i'm not that in, impressed by by some of these ports and I will say from the indie in the indie perspective I'm working on a piece now 
talking to some indie developers about the ecosystems and how they feel their games are doing because the indie system scene is actually really collapsing in on itself. And I don't think a lot of people really realize this yet. Like, What do you mean it's collapsing in? There's, you know, um, a reliably great game like from like Shadow Complex or something like that would reliably sell a lot of copies. And now game, now the, the scene is so flooded and so, so disorganized um, that great games are not even being noticed anymore. And it's, and it's pushing people out. And there's a great example on PSN last, last week, 24 games came to PSN last week, which is insane, including two fishing games. And I looked at that and I was like, wouldn't Sony care to tell one of these guys that Let's the other guys off. come in and hold? So like it's so it's so nonchalant and so hands off that it's it's a it's the race to the bottom we saw almost a decade ago on the App Store and a lot of indie developers that I'm talking to and that I know are not pleased with the way their games are doing, including on the Switch. It's over democratization, right? Where the narrative on Switch is all the indies are great and all. I'm like, guys, I'm talking to people that are like dismayed by how their games are selling on Switch. So that's not true. And and I like I I think that there needs to be more thought put into curation. And I think that's a, that's well, a, that's a drum I'm beating from hard. Nintendo's per- perspective or the Sony people. They're probably like, well, we're going to make probably the same amount of money no matter what indie games they 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 come out with. So that, from their perspective, it's probably not worth their time and effort to do that. Which is again, that's short sighted because who knows? The next Runaway Fortnite could be sitting under their nose, but no one's going to know about. It. I talked to a developer recently where they're, they're really concerned about Steam sales because they know that their game coming out will probably do better on the Switch in this instance versus Steam because with Steam it's such a crapshoot with the algorithms. What day gets released? What other games coming out? That it's almost like YouTube. There's too many people doing it. To your mm. point, when I was at PAX East this year versus the last time I was there three years ago, the amount of indie game developers probably. I don't know, quintupled was pro- would probably be a, a safe estimate since these games are so much easier to produce mm-hmm. now with all the tools out there, all the packages that you can get and people getting into it because they can say, oh, they all, I want to be the next big thing. I want to be the next, uh, you know, super meat boy. And it's just not possible. There's just too much product. Yeah, it, 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 and so it's, you know, I've been beating this drum for a while. I argue that Sony and Nintendo actually are basically losing money by putting too many games up because it's these games don't magically appear. They need to pass QA. They need to... Okay. There's a lot. Like, like I know for a fact that many, you know, I would say most games on PSN will sell fewer than 5,000 units. Sony ain't making shit on that. And the fact that, like, like a 30% rip for a $10 game selling 5,000 units, that's nothing. That's pocket change. Yeah, and, like, and my whole argument, and then, it, and then it shoves down the games that are worth it. That game, The Messenger, just came out. I haven't played it yet, but it's supposed to be great. And I think those guys were complaining that the game didn't sell that well. They, they sold 50,000 units, and they're like, it's not enough. Not enough like, to keep like, going. Yeah, and... and that's a shame because that game's supposed to be really quality. So, well, in that game though, that is an older aesthetic though. That's mm-hmm. like eight, almost almost sixteen bit right. styling, and is is that really past the prime? You, you know, that's that's the argument for that. But it's still, I see your point. Yeah, though. that's a game that got a lot of good buzz. I saw that at PAX East, and I was like, oh, this looks pretty good. Always oh, checking the time. He's got he's got a, he's got a, he's got an important lunch date. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tonight. I'm sorry, I was just checking the time. Yeah, I got yeah, I got to go. Yeah, uh, in a minute. So what's 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 next for Mr. Moriarty? Do you like the fact that you have a, a Sherlock Holmes a, a enemy name? Yeah, I always name? it was it, before Sherlock Holmes kind of came back with the movies like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I used to it was like way more niche and I used to get that uh, you know, Professor Moriarty. You know, like when I was in college, I used to get it a lot. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. What's next? The same old stuff. Like I'm um, I'm down here uh, looking at an investment opportunity. Oh, um, which I think I told I might have talked to you a little bit about, but uh-huh. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's going to happen. So um, to bring something cool into the world. So you know, I've been working on that. And um, but as far as shows are concerned, um, it's the same stuff. Like I'm just really so satisfied and so happy with what I'm what I'm doing and the response to what I'm doing. So I'm going to keep doing it. And you know, I hope that people continue to enjoy it and continue to approach it with an open mind. And um, 
you know, and continue to consume it at their leisure. And, and anyone that anyone that supports me in any way, whether it's on Patreon or just watching like an occasional show or listening to an occasional podcast, I deeply appreciate that because I know it's, it's, it's what we were just talking about. There's so much out there and so much demanding your time that anyone listens to me at all is a great, is really a great honor to me. So um, I'm just trying to enjoy it as it's happening and stay in the moment. And I look at myself and maybe you look at yourself the same way. Like I look at myself as, an, as like an athlete almost where. I know my window is is limited. There's going to be a younger, more interesting person or someone else that's going to, you know, come on the scene that might be more interesting to an audience and slowly you kind of it's the same thing as like um, an athlete comes in and he has a 15-year shelf life or a 10-year shelf life, you know. Do we think we have shelf lives as entertainers, online entrepreneurs? Possibly, really? Sure. Why not? Why wouldn't we? I mean, that's why why would we be, why would well, we be immune to market forces that affect every other market? Well, the same actors stick around for 30, 40 years sometimes. Some of them do, some of them don't. Radio, you know, and, so radio shows can last 25 years. You know, some of them do and some of them don't. New York, you're still there. Yeah, so again, you some know. of them do and some of them don't. So I'm yeah. not saying it's going to happen, but I'm, try, I'm trying to enjoy it and extract as much enjoyment out of it as possible because I know that tomorrow it could disappear. You know. Well, good. This seemed, this seemed like it was me interviewing you versus having a fireside chat, but next time we'll, we'll reverse it. You can, yeah, yeah. Um, you can talk about my dusty old games more than how I've sort of branched off I tried off in the beginning and you, were, and, you were, I, and you were disparaging yourself so I, I got well, off the topic. I, I'm a self-effacing, you know, I know that this is one step removed from 40-year-old Verge's stuff but there's a market for it and people like it and I've built a career off of doing a certain NES guidebook and I'm doing a Super Nintendo guidebook mm. that may, maybe someone related to you might be helping me yeah, with. He's, so. he, yeah, he's, he's having a good time with that and, you know, um, I'm, not, I'm not too, too much of a, a whip cracker with, 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 with the writing team, you know. I hope not. Yeah, he's you know it, it, you know my my brother is a, such a big fan, and he it, he it was so important to him for us to finally meet and for us to kind of convene. And obviously, if you ever find yourself in LA, you're welcome with me anytime. I'd love to bring you to dinner and and um, you know have you on the show. And and you know so I'm 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 honored that you had me over, and and I appreciate your time. You know I, I thank you for that. Thank you, Colin Moriarty. Uh, I'll have to ask about ask about your investment opportunity. Hopefully, yeah. I get on the bottom floor. You don't leech me for money, and then Calmore disappears with hundreds of thousands of pats on. Oh no, dollars. no, no one's giving me money. I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving someone else money. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll, no, we'll talk about that. Oh no, camera. I don't mean I'm, I'm here for. I'm not. I don't mean that I'm here. He's to selling talk to me you. on. He's selling me on something right I'm now. Not, I don't mean that I'm, I'm interested. Here to, I'm not here to t- sell you on something. I'm in San Diego to talk to someone about giving them money for something. Yes. Oh, okay. That's oh, why I'm here I think I want in on this, Colin. Now, this is that FOMO again. Fear of yeah. missing out. All right, with some new new cryptocurrency going on. Oh my god, no! All right, thanks a lot, Colin. <laughs> no, thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks again to Colin coming out and speaking to me this week. The Not So Common Podcast is proud to be working with NordVPN. It's what I use to keep myself safe online. Now you can too. If you care about your privacy and security of your information, NordVPN is now offering sixty six percent off a two year plan. When you go to nordvpn.com slash pat or use code pat at checkout. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, and today having one is more critical than ever. If you're doing anything online at all, your info and browsing habits are out there for people to get a hold of. ISPs can track our every move and use our private info to their benefit by selling our browsing habits or even throttling the websites we visit. That's not good. When you use NordVPN, you have access to over 4,000 super speedy servers in 62 countries, and those connections secure your information using military Grade encryption. That's good. I use the NordVPN app on my phone and laptop. That means safer web browsing when I'm going going out to uh, an event, going to the airport, free Wi-Fi, coffee shop, wherever. I know things like my passwords and banking info are masked. PC Mag made NordVPN their top top editor's choice for VPN solutions. Just one account lets you protect up to six devices. Wow, there's an app for Android and iOS devices, unlimited bandwidth, and a money-back guarantee. Again, to get that special offer, 66% off a two-year plan, go to nordvpn.com slash pat or use code pat, P-A-T, and get going with your secure web browsing today. 
that does it for this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. If you want to check out and pre-order my upcoming book, Ultimate Nintendo Guide to the SNES Library, go to ultimatesnes.com. There you can also purchase my certain NES guidebook that's been out a couple years that Colin and I briefly spoke about. I'll be appearing at Portland Retro Gaming Expo October 20th and 21st. Go to retrogamingexpo.com for more information there. And uh, yeah, that's it. You know, I'm doing okay. I'll see you next time. If you want to follow me and subscribe on either YouTube or Podbean or your other podcast platform of choice like Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, please do so. Leave a comment. Spread it on social media. Show me some love if you want. You can even yell at me. I can take it. Finally, if you want to help directly support me and my endeavors on this podcast as well as my other work, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Thanks, and I'll see you next time.